This fic is rated uh For March 23rd, 2007, this is episode 6 of Pothafic Weekly. Welcome to the place where the story never ends. Hey Ron, the next time you're freaked at me for calling you out on the Quidditch pitch. Just remember that time. So welcome back to Potter Thick Weekly, everybody. I am Ryan. I'm Rena. And I'm Jen. Jen, you are uh, broadcasting to us from a remote location this week, is that correct? Yeah, the remote city of San Francisco. <laughs> well, it's remote for you. <laughs> I guess. Jen always tries to podcast from a different location every week. Last week, she was in a tornado shelter. Yes. And this week, she's just gone to San Francisco to try and get away from it all. Oh, you saw the house, yes. by the way, right? Oh, yes. It's still here. We're in one piece. It was a fun four days of so much storm where you can't drive and then clear skies. Like, it was very strange. Yeah, I'm from Massachusetts. It snows here, and that's about it. I didn't know what to do. I was, like, boiling water for Jen. I just didn't know how to respond to it. <laughs> When I moved to Arkansas from Louisiana, to this day, I'm still terrified of tornadoes. Like, if it really? rains at night, I can't sleep. But it's because when I was growing up, we never had tornadoes. You just had to worry about hurricanes. And those things, they could tell you two weeks in advance if they were headed towards <laughs> <laughs> your evacuation plan, and you got the hell out of the city. But tornadoes, man, they can't tell you it. Those things freak me out. And still, to this day, I am terrified of tornadoes. We don't get off that bad up in New England, because usually we just get told it's going to snow anywhere between 2 and 117 inches of snow. So we just prepare for everything. (laughs) It's very hard to plan for. (laughs) I've only been dead center in one before. Like, I've seen four or five, but one was right on top of me one time. We were in the band, in the stands, at a football game, right? The stands were full and crowded, and all of a sudden, thunder struck. And when it struck, all the lights of the stadium and everywhere went out. And it started, like, pouring. Well, the rain started going horizontal, completely horizontal instead of vertical, like down. It was going sideways. And the sky turned real red. Everything you saw was real red. It was very strange. And the lightning went off, and it was so black that the only thing we saw was the big tornado headed towards the stadium. I would have wet myself and, right in the spot. Well, they, they, I'll never forget. They said, everyone, leave your instrument, because obviously it's a lightning beacon. Put the instrument right. down. And I was drum major, so I'm, like, trying to be in control and calm. And they put us in a bus shelter, which I don't know if y'all know. If y'all have those up north, I don't know. But here, they're just humongous metal buildings with big garage door open. Like, that's the door for these just garage openings. And they opened up the garage to equalize the pressure, and the walls bent inward. They would bend in, and then they'd bend out. It was very frightening, but you could see the tornado cross. We watched the tornado. Very frightening. (laughs) And then it goes away in blue sunny skies. I'm never going to complain about shoveling ever again. <laughs> it's different. It's uh, a different experience. I love that. You're hanging on to the yeah. side of a bus shelter. This is different. 
Okay, before we get to our fic discussion this week, we do have a voicemail that I think has been sitting in my email box for about four weeks now from Lady Chi <laughs> on the forums, who inadvertently in her email spoiled the big reveal about Ginny, so I've been waiting until we got to the right chapter. So here now, Lady Chi. Hey, Lady Chi here. I'm a beta um, for phoenixsong.net and a submissions administrator for timeturner.net. I um, sent in an email last week and uh, my comments made it on the air and my name was pronounced Lady Kai, which I thought was kind of funny. It's Lady Chi. I just wanted to give you a couple of quick comments here because my time on my computer is limited here um, about after the end, chapters 8 to 11, which you're discussing this week, as well as um, just some general fandom comments. Um, I think it's interesting that, uh, historically speaking, from the fandom uh, standpoint anyway, um, this is the first time we really see Jenny becoming Harry's partner because she's qualified to be so. I mean, um, there's there are things about Harry that are unique. He's able to defeat the, the Dark Lord Voldemort um, and do so at a very young age, so... What is it about Jenny that makes her a viable partner for Harry? Well, it's that she has the special ability to be a healer. So we, this is the first time we see this justification, um, fandom historically speaking. And uh, it's also uh, spurred on many fics later where Jenny uh, incurs some kind of special ability which makes her an acceptable partner for Harry. Um, that was one of the reasons so many Harry Hermione fans had a problem with Harry and Jenny was they were not able to come up with a reason um, as to why Jenny would be an appropriate partner for Harry. Um, just something for you to think about. Um, I also um, just wanted to say thank you again for doing the podcast. Um, sparking a kind of discussion I haven't seen in a long time, and I've been doing this for more years than I want to admit in public. So what you're doing as far as fandom is concerned is is definitely commendable and um want to thank you guys for taking time out of your day to discuss something we all um love and spend a lot of our lives dedicated to so that's it for me this week thank you so much and um you'll be hearing from me again i just want to say that i think when i said lady kai i was somehow thinking of kaio paka from star trek and that's the only explanation i have (laughs) sorry about that or, you know, there's the, the Greek letter is Kai. Well, maybe that was it. But uh, thanks very much for the kind words. And since you've recorded that, you've been a very vocal part of our forum. So we're glad that you stuck around. And uh, we hope to hear more from you soon. You are both more profound readers than I am. I just looked and I was like, Lady Chi. Okay. <laughs> 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 you are like insight. It's Greek and... <laughs> I went for a Star Trek character. I don't think that was very insightful. Of honestly, me, but I mean, honestly, mine mine just came from um, the sorority, Kai Omega. That's true. I love how Jen's oh, like, wow, right. you're profound. I'm like, we went to college and watched Star Trek. It's not that bad. <laughs> anyway, well, you know. All right. Anyway. Ch- chapter anyway. 18. Morning After, Night Before. I think that's a great title, too. I was just staring at it, trying to figure out it was the morning after what and the night before what, so. Yes. Interesting chapter. It took me a second to figure that one out. Uh, no, what is it? It's the morning after the party, and it's the night before yeah. Hermione leaves. Yeah. Okay. See? <laughs> I still got it. Chapter 18, a scene where obviously something odd is happening, and 
of course, most people are able to pick up really quickly that this is a dream sequence. Um, <laughs> it's always the dream sequence when the guy's in bed with someone. You ever notice that? Because that couldn't possibly be what's actually You know, happened. it is. Um, and I, I really like it. I like the kind of the little jokingly kind of misdirection kind of thing. And mostly because as an author, it's really funny to see how people react to it. And um, especially if it's something really, really uh, kind of off the wall. And of mm-hmm. course, you know, you're thinking here he is in bed with Jenny. Well, oh, I wasn't thinking okay. Jenny. I wasn't thinking Jenny at all. I thought it was Madame Rosmerda. Well, I mean, did you? <laughs> well, no. Last week uh, we were talking about how George and Madame Rosmerda kind of <laughs> took off for a while, and he came out smoking a squirm. So I was just thinking that woman really gets around. <laughs> Yeah, you say it's so natural, like, you know what a sperm is, obviously. <laughs> Questions for Arabella and Zinya, or Zinya, or Chinya, however you say that one. I think it's Zinya. Uh, did you ever decide? Say it again? I think it's with a G, Zinya. Zinya. Oh, dear. This is hard for me, because I've been saying Zinya. So, it starts off with this dream sequence, and it turns out that um, Harry's having a nightmare, and he's freaked out at first. Because the oh, right. scar's not burning, and it's just it's just a nightmare. With everything well, you, else that's going on, it's not uncommon for people to develop nightmares. But with everything that he's had happen to him through dreams and through nightmares, it's interesting to see his reaction when he's, his legs are buckling in relief and he's calmed down because he's not, you know, this isn't a dangerous message from Voldemort. For once, it's just, you know, a regular old nightmare. And this is the second time they've played that hand, because you see hungover Harry wake up in the morning and think Voldemort's trying to get into his brain, and now he just had a really trying day, and, you know, ma- many new things happened to him. You know, his relationship with Ginny advanced, you know, somewhat considerably. So for Harry, this is, you know, a very er- erotic morning dream, and for him, he thinks that it must have something to do with Voldemort. <laughs> then he, like, turns looking for his mother. You know, how romantic can that be? <laughs> Oh, because it's kind of like the... Oh, um, oh, God, this is so weird. Yeah, because it's like, uh, it shifts from the erotic morning dream to to the experience he has every time to he's around a dementor. My mom is dying. <laughs> right. And then he wakes up and obviously, you know, is greeted by the Oliver Wood alarm clock that Remus so wonderfully gave him for Christmas. And this absolutely I need an alarm clock like that. <laughs> it's the only I way you'll do. get out of it. It reminds me of that one, I don't know if y'all have seen Sister Act, but they have that, like, Daisy... <laughs> How did that, like, Daisy Head? <laughs> or is it Daisy Head or Sleepy Head? I don't think you Sleepy Head. I don't think Daisy Head. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me think of that. Like, Whoopi's like, oh, dear, turn it off. <laughs> yeah. But he's just like, like Ron. He's like, shut it off. <laughs> yeah. He okay. goes down and he eats breakfast. Yeah, and then he can't eat it. He can't eat it, though. He can't eat anything eat. because he's just nervous. Yeah. And so he's getting ready to, to go and to leave, and then all of a sudden he's back on the stairs, and he's going upstairs, and he's going to the girls' room, and he sees Ginny, and he witnesses Ginny having a nightmare. It kind of shocks him because while he knew that she had nightmares, you know, obviously this is his first experience seeing her have a nightmare 
things like that. She's been having them for years, but she's never been right there experiencing what happens when she has a nightmare. She says the same thing that Harry's mother said in his nightmare. Please, not Harry, not Harry. Harry is obviously shaken by this, and then he sees Hermione step into the motherly role. Hermione does it by such routine. You can tell this has happened every night since they've been at the lodge, and probably even before that. This is something that... One thing that struck me is that this is something that has been happening, you know, for seven years, that she's been having these nightmares, most likely, ever since she was in the Chamber of Secrets. And for Mm -hmm. all of his time at Hogwarts, with the dreams, with Voldemort, you know, with the visions he's been having and the nightmares, he's been very vocal about it. And everything that's consumed the trio and Ginny and the Weasleys has been, you know, Harry, Harry's dreams, Harry's mission, you know, Harry's need to defeat Voldemort. All of that's been out in the open. He never knew that the entire time he's been having these troubles, she's been very silently going through hell. And she's never said a word about it. Well, and it's very, I mean, I thought this was another place where it was an interesting parallel to canon because it was in Order of the Phoenix when he ends up talking to Jenny about being possessed. And it's because it never occurred to him to talk to her. Because even though she went through the exact same thing. I love it. The moment that Hermione notices someone's at the door, he just apparates. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> I thought, it's like, she'll never know I was here. But well, I just love that she kid. assumes it's Ron. Well, I just thought it's, it's the kid with his hand in the cookie jar. You know? yeah. <laughs> well, no, I didn't see it like that. I, I guess I thought because it was so serious. I think he'd gone up there on a whim and saw something that shocked him. Maybe Hermione was protecting Jenny, something that Jenny didn't want out. I don't know. Well, it's kind of like what happens to Jenny in the previous chapter. Because the, the first half of chapter 18, or the first few sections of chapter 18, just show you the, you know, the entwined similarities between Harry and Jenny. You have Jenny mm-hmm. dancing with Harry at the party, and she says something that she never meant to say. And what's her first in- yeah. instinct? She runs like hell. I'm sure if she knew how to disapparate, she would have popped her out of the party. <laughs> Harry wants to see Jenny in the morning before he leaves for Quidditch practice, and he sees something he never meant to see, and someone spots him at the door, and what's he do? He runs like hell. <laughs> so it's just, just another similarity that these characters have. And so he disappears, and he's at Quidditch practice, and... I love it. He jumps on his broom and shoots up in the air, and Oliver's like, wait, calm down. (laughs) I guess it's always kind of seemed to me since the beginning of this story that while playing Quidditch was always something Harry was good at, it was never something he intended to do as a career. I don't know. I guess to me it's always seemed like his even going to Quidditch practice and stuff has almost been like an afterthought to him Mm -hmm. the whole time. And I just think it's funny that that going back to Hogwarts at the wedding and being there and all that stuff has just completely driven Quidditch out of his mind. Well, he forgot it was the morning that they announced who made the team. (laughs) He didn't even realize that after everything that happened with Ginny in the previous chapter. That just went right out of his head. He doesn't see Quidditch as work, like a professional sport of going into a job. Like, Quidditch is fun. Quidditch is a game, and Quidditch is free time. So, of course, he's not going to take it as seriously as other players because... There are other serious things going on. Do you know what I mean? And he doesn't actually see it as a career or as a job. He just sees it something that he likes doing and it's fun. And I think he even views it as temporary. You know, I don't think he actually ever committed to it in the way that he would like. I think he, he, he wanted to go back to where he was still in school and Oliver was still the captain, you know, and it was still like being a kid, I think. Does that... Yeah, that makes sense. That's a good point. You learn pretty quickly from canon that Quidditch is like 
the highlight of Harry's schooling. Yeah. And to be back there doing that, it's a way to distract him from having to deal with reality. That's exactly it. Mm-hmm. It's escapism. I just, I just think it's funny that Jenny can distract him from his distraction. <laughs> You know? Well, what better a man's distraction than the girl he loves? Well, yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I think of course they have to put it in there. I mean, it's got to be there. There was the smell of grass and mud and practice robes, and Harry's mind traveled back to the Hogwarts grounds, where Jenny stood in the hill, staring at nothing, her pale blue dress robes whipping around her ankles. Father! Oliver demanded sharply. It's... He, he is so conflicted. You, you know, war, Voldemort... Death, destruction, nothing. Ginny was on a hill in a blue dress. <laughs> he can't even remember where he is. Seriously, how cool of a fan art picture would that be? Of Ginny on the hill in the blue dress, whipping in the wind. Oh, I'm sure someone's done that one by now. Well, there you go. Fan artists out there listening. We have a commission for you. For yes. Ken, draw the picture of Harry watching Ginny standing on a hill in her blue dress robes with the wind whipping around her ankles. So or if you, you know of, if you know of 50 people who have already done that, please send the links to JanetPotherfigWeekly.com. Well, I'm still waiting for Thank the, you all. Well, I'm hoping I can get the fan art challenge of Voldemort and the JCPenney Cosmetics counter. I'm still holding out some hope for that one. You should try. I mean, even if it's stick figure Voldemort, you should try. Oh, if it's stick figure Vol- Voldemort, I can do it. Come on. So we find out here that Harry, yay, makes the team, which... I mean, honestly, was there any big shocker he was going to make the team? (laughs) Wouldn't that be awful? I just want to point out that we're already seeing Oliver is acting very strangely around Maureen. Yes, Very strangely. And Harry notices it, which is very observant for our unobservant Harry. (laughs) I was going to say, that's very observant for the guy who doesn't even know if he's supposed to be in the air or not. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like... He's like, really? I made secret? What? He's like, he's like, what day is this? Am I wearing pants? Why is Oliver looking at Maureen like that? It, just, it seems very <laughs> odd characterization. Uh, and I do love the moment where Harry is just, he, he's about to find out he makes the team, and he's just trying to, you know, settle, you know, the Ginny situation down in his head. And all I can think of is, damn, George. Because George, of course, bursts the door open at the that. last minute, smoking his post the squirm, and, you know, just... Ugh. I thought that was great, too. And he voices what we're all feeling. Damn, George. <laughs> you know, just this complete annoyance. Coming from the woman who it. wanted to jump kick Dobby across the Hogwarts grounds last week for interrupting <laughs> me. Yeah, don't even get me started. Seriously. No, she did. She wouldn't let us talk about Dobby. She's like, I want to kick him. And then we got to George. I want to kick him. I'm like, you're just going to be running around the wizarding world kicking people, and no one's going to know why. <laughs> it's no, all of the, I'll know why. Stupid jerks. I carry a wooden spoon in my backpack when I was in high school, and if someone said something really stupid around me, I would whack them in the head with it. (laughs) That is brilliant. (laughs) One other thing, too, I'm reading through the uh, story right here. I do like the little um, reference to when Oliver's explaining who gets what position. He's like, the keeper, that's me, which is completely lifted from the Philosopher's Stone movie. (laughs) Yeah. I just think it's funny that the captain is actually a member of the team. I think I was shocked that he was actually playing at that point, especially for Americans. You know, there aren't team captains on any of our organized sports. You have coaches, and the coaches yeah. are never players. And so yeah. it's hard to think of a sport where the coach really is actually out on the field with the other players. You would think that, especially on a professional league, you know, you know, a pickup team, stuff like that, you might not have a coach. 
But for a professional team, you'd expect them to have someone whose job it was to just do strategy and, and not worry about actually playing the game. Yeah, is that an actual European thing, or is that just a Harry Potter thing? Oh, I have absolutely no idea. If anyone has ever watched a sports program, please email staff at potterfickweekly.com and explain to us how this all works. <laughs> all if- I know about sports in England has come directly from the little ESPN UK sketches they do on Craig Ferguson every, while, every once in a while with the perverted ex-soccer player. <laughs> oh, that's all I know about it. I know that they call soccer football or something, or cricket. I don't Cricket? Yeah. <laughs> they call it... They call it football. Cricket is a completely different game. We need to start doing more research before these episodes. You ever think that? Crikey. Holy cricket, you're Harry Potter. Holy cricket. They don't say cricket. They don't say cricket. So Harry makes the team and returns to the Lupin Lodge about three minutes after he left. And Ron, of course, is still sleeping in bed. And everything's great. Harry's going to be on a Quidditch team. Things are coming together with Ginny. Good times. Happy days are here again. I want to kick Charlie. <laughs> Why? Did something happen with Charlie? <laughs> so, well, Pig is flying in circles, and Hedwig is, I think, very maturely ignoring him because she is focused on this other owl who is drinking out of her bowl. Okay, now, so okay, you, I, honestly, I've, as yeah. someone that has pets. My dogs do not share their water bowl with anybody. I was just going to say, can we please have a chapter from Hedwig's perspective? Because I think the entire yeah. chapter would be, why are you near my bowl? Get away from my Because if you notice, every scene Hedwig is in, she you know, is snippy with Harry if he's in a bad mood, and she's angry at the other owl in the room. Those are the only two conflicting emotions you ever get out of Hedwig. <laughs> I'm currently baiting a story for a, a guy, and the first part of it is from Hedwig's perspective. Was it those two conflicting roles over and over again? Who are no, you? No, it wasn't. Okay. But it was about how she knows how to find Harry all the time. Oh, that's interesting. Because I was going to say... really quite interesting. Because I was going to say, so far what we get from Hedwig is, don't you take that attitude with me. I know, she's very happy. I know, Hedwig is very You know, happy. I imagine if Hedwig had arms, she would do the little snappy thing at him. <laughs> yeah, the little... <laughs> <laughs> that with me. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to the hand. Exactly. <laughs> Talk to the wing. Talk to the wing. Because <laughs> the beak ain't talking. Exactly. Because the beak ain't listening. <laughs> so, here gets this letter from Charlie that's basically saying, hey, we need people for the PAP. And, uh, Yeah. Please consider your answer. The ministry needs you. And even at the bottom, Charlie has written, please, don't listen to this. I'm sorry I had to send it. Tell everyone I said hi. I mean, Not Charlie, he, does, Charlie doesn't he does want a, Harry to take the job. Charlie doesn't want Harry to take the job. And I think it's interesting, based on what we were just talking about, about Harry playing Quidditch. How much of this do you think is Harry knowing that Quidditch is a great escape, but he feels such a sense of responsibility to completely end this war and completely bury all of the repercussions and to completely solve all of the consequences that came out of winning the war. When you win it, you own it. There's so much love to do. How much of it do you think is just Harry saying, you know, I have a responsibility to do this? 
I said, I think it's just Harry waiting for the other shoe to drop because he's never been able to have just a happy, normal life. And even all through this, you can see he's being cautious about it because he's literally just waiting for the bad thing to happen. And here it is. And he was expecting it. I don't think that Harry wants to win anything. I don't think he wants to lose but he doesn't want to, like, he doesn't know, like, just what Rita said. He doesn't know any better. Like, this is what he's done since he can remember is fight problems and take care of whatever needs to get done. And that's just the way loss is. And that when good things happen, don't hold too tight to them because they go away. And, yeah, enjoy them a little bit while you can. But pretty much something's going to happen. And this is just another something. He, he's totally expecting of it. Life's a bitch and then it has puppies. And these are the puppies. <laughs> What? It says life's a bitch, and then it has I puppies. heard what you said. <laughs> okay, but I was going to say, I'm, I'm always... <laughs> I just got it, bitch. And <laughs> I was like, what do puppies have to do with that? Jen's like, I just got it, kitchen sink. <laughs> <laughs> Usually, like, it doesn't take me this long. I swear I'm slow on the podcast. <laughs> oh, Jen's got jet lag. But, um. That was a good one. I know. I, I was going to say, this fic. Add it to my list of Renee's. And- <sighs> I am. I'm going to have a novel by the time I get Jen's like the, the sweet little girl that you babysit and you send her back to her mother on a sugar high swearing. <laughs> I learned so many new words on this podcast. I Um, know. I'm going to start wearing black. Okay. Oh, God. I was going to say, I'm continually amazed by what a good job this fic does of linking certain characters together and just showing how everyone has the exact same problem. And you wonder how much of it just worked out that way and how much of it was planned in excruciating detail. Look at Sirius and look at Harry. They both have this tendency to only trust themselves, to be introverts, to not look beyond what they are capable of managing. Sirius does not trust anyone else to make sure that the people at Azkaban get a fair trial, because he was denied that. Harry has literally saved the world. His friends helped a lot, but Harry was the focal point of that. And look back at one of the first Quidditch practices when the Dementor shows up. Harry, you know, just slumps his shoulders, takes a deep breath, jumps on his broom, and flies off to Azkaban because that's what he's used to doing. He's used to being the one to handle it. So Harry gets a letter from Charlie saying, don't worry about this, let someone else handle it. Harry can't let someone else handle it because he's always had to do with himself. So I think, you know, we're expecting so much of him. We were joking... uh, in one of the last episodes about the Harry Defense Force and how there's people around Harry when they see him going off the deep end, they jump around him and they protect him from himself. He's alone in this room. He gets the leather. If the rest of them were there, they probably would have grabbed the leather and burned it up, but they're not. And I was actually surprised by how quickly Harry accepted. I think we're used to, in Joe Rowling's novels, getting a little bit of discussion before decisions are made. This is Harry, without even thinking, you know, grabs the leather before he has a chance to change his mind, signs, I'll do it sends it off with the owl, and that's it. You have that moment of silence right after where you just, no one breathes, and you're like, did he just do what I think he just did? Well, doesn't it say somewhere that he did it so quickly 
because no one else was in the room to stop him. Yeah. It reminds me of the All in the Family episode where Archie Bunker <laughs> is with his grandson and his and, and his daughter and his son-in-law won't have the grandson baptized. So he takes the grandson to the church and actually baptizes him himself. And he ends with, they're going to kill me when I get home. And it's just the same thing. You can t- you talk about waiting for the other shoe to drop. They're going to kill him when they find out when he just did. And I was surprised by the reaction of some of the characters, because I think you have this image in your head that it's going to be just like when he disappeared for two days to take care of the Dementor. You imagine, you know, Remus being, you imagine Sirius being furious. You imagine, you know, mm-hmm. Ginny, you know, just being so glad to see him that she, you know, can barely even speak. And it's kind of reverse. Ginny is the furious one, and Sirius was a lot calmer with the information than I ever expected them to be. And they just do such a good job of playing on the reader's expectations here. I just thought it was a, it was just a really great way to handle that. Ron's reaction was just a kick in the stomach. On two levels, too, because, and just to move the storyline along, so Harry signs the letter, he sends it off, and Ginny comes out of her room. And this is the first time he has seen Ginny, and she has seen him, since they had that perfect moment together at right. Three Broomsticks, when they're talking without words, and he disapparates, and Ginny's just left with her mom. And now she asks him, how does it go? And he is just taken aback, you know, just by the conversation, and he knows that he has to tell her, and he doesn't know how she's going to react. And he finally tells her that, he, you know, he made Seeker, and she's thrilled, and she rushes over and hugs him, and then you can tell, mm-hmm. I've got to rip the Band-Aid off. I've got to tell her what happened. Uh, I, I, I'm with her. No. <laughs> I, no, I immediate disbelief. You know, she's trying to explain it to herself. Well, I think, you know, this is one of the instances, I think, where this Jenny and what would become Ken and Jenny are very different. Okay. Because for the most part, you know, this was the first story that really gave Jenny any kind of spunk. I I love Spunky Jenny because I think that she keeps things interesting. The first Jenny that we saw when we first, when these books started was very timid and she was very shy around Harry and that dynamic didn't even really interest anyone until after she kind of got her footing and was like, hey, I'm here. Let's talk about me. But what I really like is, or, but this is one place where I think they really deviated from where Can and Jenny ended up going because as we saw in um, Half-Blood Prince, which obviously was not written when this was, when Harry ended his relationship with Jenny. She's just like, you're going off to do something noble, aren't you? She's not going to argue with it because she knows there's no point. And this Jenny, instead of being kind of resigned to that and saying, yeah, okay, this is what you're going to do. I know this is what you're going to do. She's trying to fight it. Mm -hmm. And in fairness, too, I don't think we gave uh, Ken and Jenny a chance yet to see what she's really made of. You know, she loses that one little battle, let's say, you know, at the lake at the end of Half-Blood Prince, but you don't know how she would have responded an hour later. Like, for all you know, they'll get ready to go off looking for the Horcruxes, and, you know, Jenny will be there with a suitcase. But I love... <laughs> no, <laughs> that, Wouldn't that be great halfway through with Deathly Hallows? You know, one of them opens up their suitcase, and Jenny's been inside it the whole time she's showed the way. And Ron's like, I thought that was heavier. <laughs> Oh, that would be awesome. It better happen, too. Off. 
<laughs> she saves the day. She she pulls herself out of the like you know Liz Claiborne luggage. But um, you have a. <laughs> Did I just say Liz Claiborne? Okay, now exactly which one of them is going to have Liz Claiborne luggage? <laughs> Ron, <laughs> like you can't even like a. Does like Liz a Claiborne even make luggage? I think I don't know, but I think it's like Walmart brand or something. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter two: The Walmart checkup. Um. Well, come on. Walmart rules the world. Has to play in Harry Potter somewhere. Wouldn't that be great if Ron takes Molly's luggage with him and it's just like pink? The Death Eaters Eaters can see them because they're all camouflaged, but they get the pink luggage with them. But um, I do love, and we were talking about this last week, I love it when they use such very simple language to communicate between these two characters because they're so close they don't need words. You know, she says, you know, you made Seeker. He says, you know, he's going to ride dragons. He's needed there. This is more important. She says, you didn't say yes. He says, yes, I did. He says, I already told them. She says, take it back. He says, I'm going. She says, I'm going too. And you know she means it. If she has to swim to Azkaban, she's going to. You can tell Ginny has lost too much. She has invested too much in this relationship. She will not allow Harry to kill himself like this. I just want to point out that one thing where they're arguing and and he goes, let go. He yanks his wand away. She doesn't drop her hand, you know. Um, And then she puts her hand like on his heart, which I thought was very interesting. And then... He dares her. I mean, did y'all find the dialogue here interesting in that it wasn't he asked softly, he dared softly. Like, he's just wanting her. I don't, I can't figure out his motivation for that. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, he's frustrated with her lack of support, but it's almost like he's egging on a fight here. Well, I think you... And and part of it is he might be egging on the fight because he knows he doesn't want to be doing this. He doesn't know why he did it in the first place. And so maybe he's hoping, you know, he's got conflicted emotions about it, so he's just lashing out. Yeah, because you see that with so many different characters. You see that with Harry himself after he drives the Dementor back to Azkaban. You know, don't they know what I just went through? Did they think I was on vacation? You know, and eventually when he sees the effect of Helen Ginny, he kind of comes around. You know, so many of these, you know, Ron with Hermione, you know, Ron, you know, bends over backwards to avoid the fight with Draco, and he fails, and Hermione acts like he didn't even try. And you just see the characters just get so enraged by the fact that people won't hear them out. So, in Harry's mind, he's doing a noble thing, he's sacrificing for the 138th time, and Ginny's response is, well, why would you do that? Like, he's somehow being selfish. So, I think Ren is right. I think he is egging her on just a bit. No. And Ginny is actually... I think in this case, you could imagine a previous version of Ginny. You could imagine a younger Ginny, so in love with Harry, she would back down when he pushes. She pushes right back with equal force. She does push back with equal force, you know, but I don't know. I hate to see these characters fight, and I don't know what Harry was thinking, though. I mean, he obviously knew they weren't going to be jumping up and down supportive for him, so I just don't understand, I guess, his extreme defense for it. Well, it's because he's always has this nobility issue. And for so long, he's always had to defend what he planned to do. 
You know, he never wanted to include Ron and Hermione in the search for Voldemort. He wanted to do it on his own. He had to Mm -hmm. defend his desire to do it on his own. And here's another chance where he's going to do something and he's having to defend himself. And no, he doesn't really want to do it. And yes, he's just lashing out, but he's also so used to having to defend himself. That's the only way he knows how to respond. It must get grating. You have to wonder in Harry's mind, how much do I have to do before people will learn to trust me? Or how much do I yeah. do will leave me alone? But, so, you know, I'm pissed at him, too, in this chapter. So I'm not exactly sure his motives are good. I think they're, they're a, a tiny bit selfish. Like, he's making this decision because he can. And everybody's just going to have to deal with it. And, yes, one of the perks is that it's for a good thing. But a big part of it is he doesn't actually have to face his demons. Like, he can just prolong war. Do you know what I mean? No, I think that's very well said. He reminds me of someone who has a fight with his girlfriend and then joins the army. And then the fight's over two hours later and he's now joined the army. He's no, he's not doing this because he primarily wants to save the world yet again. He's doing this because saving the world yet again is a great way for Harry not to have to think about things. And mm-hmm. when and it's something I hinted at before. When you win a war, you win the mess. If Voldemort had won, he would have had to deal with the ministry. He would have had to deal with all of the aftermath of that the good guys won they own the mess and when the fighting stops when you know the guns are silent and there's that quiet you have to deal with everything you've been putting on hold for in harry's case his entire life that's over you know he gets to play quidditch now things are great with jenny times are getting better I think that scares the hell out of him because he has to now yeah, deal so. with so much stuff. You know, he just came back from Hogwarts. He just came back, you know, after having a three-month respite. Think how traumatizing that is in any event. He went back to the area where his world almost ended and his family was almost killed. And he doesn't want to have to deal with this. So, oh, they need him to go to Azkaban for a while? He signs the letter before he even has a chance to think about it. So Ron comes out of his room, and you expect Ron to be, you know, talk about playing on the reader's expectations. You expect Ron to be livid that Harry has done this. He is silent. All he can say is, you made Seeker for the cannons? And Harry says yes. He didn't know Ron overheard them. Ron just turns around, goes back in the room, and shuts the door. Well, it's like the poorest person on the world winning the lottery and then giving it back. You're just like, what? Like, to Ron... That's the greatest thing anyone could possibly achieve, like greater than Ron can even imagine for himself. And that Harry willingly just gave it up in a heartbeat dumbfounds Ron. I yeah, think. I think that's perfectly it dumbfounds put. me. I think that's perfectly put. Harry has everything that Ron's ever wanted, and Harry gives it up. And I think on one level, he's disappointed in Harry. And I think on another level, he knows it's not worth fighting over because he knows that Harry's mind is made up. I don't think it's that at all. I think he's just like, Harry is so beyond Ron at this moment. Ron cannot help him. He can't understand him. You know, and I love that. Like, he just asked quietly, and that sentence is, it was worse than anything Jenny or anyone could have ever said to him. Harry felt his heart crash into his shoes. He, he opens his mouth and tries to explain. It's just useless. There's nothing he can say. There's something between Harry and Ron that will never be there again. Hermione's leaving that night. Harry's going to Azkaban. Ron has no idea what he wants to do with his life. I think 
you're right. I think it's just a double whammy for him. I just think that he's taken aback by Harry's response. And I think he's feeling so insecure at this point in his life. And his best friend just seems to be throwing aside everything that he himself would kill for. Well, childhood dreams aren't imaginable anymore. Yeah. Why can't everything just be... Why can't everything be easy? Why can't Hermione stay with me? And why can't Harry just play Quidditch? Yeah. He just can't fathom it. Let's talk about Hermione and Gwen. Okay. Okay. This irritates me. What? It irritates me so much. Well, okay. Yeah, I don't know. Me if, too. But, okay. I don't know if any of you guys read the stories where this is coming from. I read some of them. I haven't read all of them. I haven't. Yeah. Well, for those of you who haven't, there was a series of stories. The HQOW stands for Hermione, Queen of Witches. And it was a series of stories that were written basically as Hermione's diary entries, which, okay, that in itself is fine. They were written by Arabella, right? I just... I believe Arabella I mean, that in itself is fine. The thing that I find so disturbing about these stories is that, yes, this is just a diary. I'm sure it's completely innocuous. But after the entire ordeal in the Chamber of Secrets with a diary that had a brain in it, it just <laughs> blows my mind that they would hear create a diary with a brain in it. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I mean, obviously, it's not the same thing. I get that. It just baffles me that that concept would even occur to anyone. You wonder if to have these... a journal to have a journal that writes back after everything that happened with Tom Riddle's diary. It just it just blows my mind. Well, I think it's a cute idea. You wonder Continue. if you wonder if Ginny actually thought back in the Chamber of Secrets this was something that someone bought that like flourish and bots off the rack, <laughs> not realizing it's you know the burkrock of you know a long forgotten uh, dark wizard. I actually thought or- it was an interesting idea. I thought because I did read some of Arabella's stories. I thought in the very beginning Gwen was her only friend at Hogwarts until uh, Harry and Ron came around. I think it's interesting that, that she has you know a talking diary that she's been able to keep with her all of you know her wizarding life, especially since her parents were tortured. I think that it just, it provides some type of stability to her, especially, you know, as she's about to undertake such a upheaval in her life as she goes off to train as a thinker. I think I would have much preferred this scene had she been talking to Jenny or to Remus. I found the whole scene just quite disturbing that one, I don't see Hermione as a diary girl at all. I see her as someone who's very practical and is has too much, never has enough time on her hands. You know, she's always working. I don't see her as stopping doing something important to sit down and talk about her feelings. You know, and, and then secondly, I have to somewhat, I, I do agree with the Chamber of Secrets thing. Like, I find the whole talking diary thing very disturbing. And I know that they probably put this in here to just emphasize that it's very common in the wizarding world to have talking diaries. And that's why they probably thought there was nothing of it. And I think in that, we give Jenny a slight out that, that she wasn't quite so stupid or so naive. It's very common. Let me take the other position here. I see, say talking diaries are readily available. And say you have Hermione, who is the book smart kid who doesn't have a lot of friends, who at you know, who probably had a terrible time growing up in the muggle world because she was probably an outcast amongst her peers and she goes off to Hogwarts. She doesn't have any friends for months, if you think about it. And for well, someone who, you know, is sharing a dorm room with Parvati and Lavender who are probably up doing each other's hair all night, you know, she probably feels 
like a living outcast. She doesn't have any real girlfriends until Ginny much later in her Hogwarts years. I could actually see Hermione as someone who, you know, would need that, you know, person that only she could talk to. I think for her, that would be a very enticing prospect. Although, you know, talking diary, I could see the concern. I, I, I honestly, I don't remember exactly how in the original story Hermione comes across this particular talking diary. The thing that always struck me as odd is that being muggle-born, if Hermione kept a diary of any kind, yes, I don't wouldn't think be a she would one. immediately keep a talking one. I think if she was, you know, because if she grew up with a diary writing stuff down, I would almost think she would prefer to have one that didn't talk back to her. Well, no, what I actually <laughs> pictured... a huge adjustment. What I actually pictured was, you know, she gets her Hogwarts leather, her parents take her to Diagon Alley, she goes to Flourish and Box for the first time, you know, falls over as soon as she walks in the store because she's so happy, and she finds the talking diary when she's buying her first year books, and being the outcast that she's been up until that point, she buys it. That was just how I pictured it. I just, yeah. I have to say, I think that Hermione, I don't, what I don't like about the diary is it makes Hermione extremely feminine, I think. And, and I don't see Hermione as extremely feminine. I see her as very intellectual, a very strong, smart, brave woman. One of those women can stand on her own. Yes, she has vulnerable moments, but as a whole, she is a strong woman. And I think that in the circumstances, she really was unsure of something that she would seek the counsel of someone else more mature than her or even just someone uh, physical to share with rather than take advice from a diary, which is kind of what she's doing here. And that really disturbed me. What do you guys think about Hermione's talking diary? Email staff at potterfickweekly.com. Send us in voicemails over Gizmo Project. Uh, The link to that program is on potterfickweekly.com on the contact us page. Let us know what you think about Gwen the Talking Diary by Arabella. The final night before Hermione leaves. I, I really think they wrote it very well. Yes. I think that this scene could have gone in like 30 different directions. And it could have been really, really bad. It also could have been really, really cheesy. And I think that they managed to balance out the sweet moments and the painful moments and everything without pushing it over into saccharine territory and without making it just bad. I, I, just, I think they did a really good job. Every time I read it, I find it surprising that it's so G-rated. Yeah. Do you know what? I like. I felt like it could have gone a little bit more descriptive. Yeah, to be I don't honest, know. I'm not, not exa- making it. I have to tell you, I'm not exactly sure what even happened. And maybe I'm not supposed to. <laughs> I, got I mean, some- I have a good idea of what happened. But, you know, it's so G-rated. Well, like, you, know what, you know what it was? I actually thought I remembered what happened from the first time I read the story. And then reading it through again for this podcast, I was like, oh, wait, that didn't happen. What did happen? Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was, I almost, Jenya, send me an email. But I won't put it on the show. Just tell me what happened. But, um, just kidding. <laughs> I have to know what No, I want to know. Not just kidding. <laughs> I want to know why they didn't make this a little bit gushier. Than it was. It was a private moment between Ron and Hermione. You give them some privacy. 
Oh, please. We've been eavesdropping throughout the whole story. What would be any more proud about this moment? That's a fair point. I do like the characterization of Ron in this chapter. He was such the pig-headed guy who didn't want Hermione to leave under any circumstances, and now he's resigned himself to it. He says, don't go, but he knows she's going, and he's accepted that. And you see them spend the night together, and she wakes up in the morning, and he refuses to let her go, and he has her pinned down, and every time she tries to escape, he's literally like the guy, he's like standing at the door, and she's trying to leave, and he's like backing both ways, trying to like block off her exit. I did like the moment, love Gwen or not, I loved how she runs to the bathroom, and then runs back, and grabs Gwen, and then runs into the bathroom again, because she obviously... Gwen needs to be kept informed as to what happened. So Gwen right now is the only other person besides those two who apparently know what happened that night. You would think that she would have a locking spell or something. This is true, too. <laughs> Hopefully she does. Maybe Gwen will never tell. Maybe it like just disappears when it hits the page. So yeah. you, Hermione, get ready, and Ron's laying in bed, and of course Ginny comes into the room, and I love Ron's reaction. Maybe she has no idea what happened. He didn't know how much girls told each other, but she was his sister, and he liked to pretend that she neither knew what he did nor did anything herself. (laughs) I just think it's hysterical. Well, you have so many different characterizations of Ron in these stories. You have the Ron who won't let his sister date till she's 35, and and after the end, you have the much more manageable Ron who acknowledges that Ginny is a woman, that Ginny will be having these experiences, many of whom likely with his best friend. He just doesn't want to have to hear about it. I just think laid-back Ron is so much more fun to read. I just see Ron as very much the Wesley and Buffy character. Like, his transitions, he's maturing. He's so much like Wesley, for anybody who's seen Buffy and Angel. Yeah, I haven't, so I have no idea. So we move it downstairs. (laughs) (laughs) Jen's crying uncontrollably. I can't. And then Ron felt his chin tremble. Goodbye, Hermione. I was in like, she chokes out, I love you. And and he can't even read the letter. The letter comes from the ministry saying that Draco is pressing charges against Ron. Yes. And for the first time since we find out about the thinker, Hermione is not going to go. She is going to stay. She is going to be there with Ron as he goes through this. Now, this is what Ron has wanted the entire time is for her to give up on her desire to train with the thinker and to stay. And he says, no, you have to go. I want you to go. And he's completely lying as he says this. And they just have this moment where she knows she has to go. She knows that it's not her place anymore to be there watching over Ron every day. She has to give that up for a while. And they just stare at each other. And I love how formal it is. You know, goodbye, Hermione. Goodbye, Ron. And this is around Jen. You were probably crying hysterically at this point. Yes, I was. <laughs> and Hermione disapparates. And that actually surprised me. I thought she would, like, walk out the door. She just pops out in the middle of the room. Uh, and well, I'm going to kick her. Why are you kicking Hermione now? You're kicking everybody. I Honestly, know. Here's the thing that has always kind of struck me with the whole apparition thing. I don't know if y'all ever watched Charmed. If you ever watched oh, that Charmed. show, you know, half the time the characters would be like, okay, I'm orbing over there, and then they'd walk out the door. And it's just like, <laughs> what? <laughs> the thing that always kind of gets me about that disapparating is that people are very, very seldom consistent with how they use it. Half the time they're like, well, I'm off, walk out the door to an apparition point. The other half of the time they're just like, all right, see ya. Snap, they're gone. You know, I will say in all of my fan fictions, this is kind of the only ones that I've read where they actually can just leave from the spot that they are. Like most of the fan fictions, like 
their house is warded or something so that people can't operate in. So they have to leave the house to get to an apparition point to operate out. It's kind of like the transporter yeah. in Star Trek because then you have the one right. where, you know, it's there's wards up, but only certain people can operate into the house. It's kind of like, you know, rotate the shield so that the thing can fit there. It just... I just, yeah, I think there's yeah, a lot where, of leeway on that. You know, if you're transporting on or off the ship, you have to go to the transporter room, but they can lock onto you and beam you anywhere. Yeah, you it's, know? It's, it's whatever the writers want them to do. I just thought that was, and plus I love the ones where, you know, if you don't know where you're going, you have to study the map and you have to memorize exactly where you're going. And you have Hermione going to some island she's never heard of and she can just disappear from the living room. I just thought that was interesting. I'm like, um, do you yeah. want to think about this? I'm like, you're a little emotional there. You want to, you know, maybe sit down for a minute, but Hermione, you know, apparates away, and Ron, you know, immediately breaks down. He's crying so hard, he can't even see the leather saying he is being sued by his arch-rival. And Jen now needs therapy. At least a box of tissues. (laughs) Oh, she's gone through just that much already. Alright, moving right along. (laughs) Chapter 19. Uh, Very short chapter. We start off from uh, Hermione's perspective. We're finally on the road to actually becoming a thinker instead of just talking about it. Although we are literally on the road. I thought it was very cleverly done. She's been gone for an afternoon and she doesn't know how to get on the island and she's considering turning around and going back. But she knows her parents are there and they're still in the state they're in and she has to go forward. But you just think, wouldn't that be awful if after all the fighting and all the decision making she shows up at like 3 o'clock that afternoon and says she changed her mind? Yeah. I found the whole thing very weird. I kept going in my head. How many people went to go get a drink and winded up on the Thinker <laughs> Island and going like, no, I was freaking thirsty. <laughs> so by this point, maybe she's just playing oh, another person that is the Thinker. It must be. Hermione was the 17th person to pop on the island that day right after Farmer Bob because he was thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she gets well, there and has to yes. wait in lawn or something. But, but... The thinker also does know that Hermione wants to be there, and so she is sort of expecting her. Yeah, well, that's but true, the but... ladle in the water, like, what if Hermione wasn't actually thirsty? What if she brought along a water bottle? And, like, you know, well, I just I... found it very Yeah, weird. I can see that would be interesting, too, if, like, all the muggles walking by went for a drink of water and they all ended up on the thinking island. <laughs> you know, like, hello! <laughs> so possible that the muggles can't see it. I do want to comment on Hermione's reaction. The minute she touches the ladle, she feels the pull around her navel, and she becomes instantly frightened because she thinks it's dark magic. She thinks it's death eaters. She's all alone. Nobody is expecting her for four months, and you know, no one would know where to find her. She doesn't know what's happening. And it's just one of those moments, like you see so often during this fic, where you have you know, a loud noise and everyone dives to the ground and pulls out their wand. These people have post-traumatic stress. So it's probably not a good thing that, you know, she touches a label. Well, and seriously. And illegal port keys shouldn't just be laying around in water basins. <laughs> I would be line. freaked out, too. <laughs> illegal port keys should not be allowed in water basins. I think that's a great line. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but, you know, like... If I were her and war was only over for like, what, two or three months, mm-hmm. and then I suddenly got port keyed somewhere that did not have a sign saying, a hold ladle to thinker, I would freak out. You think there would really be a sign that says ladle to thinker? <laughs> well, at least, you know, it would be logical to have a sign. I think that for anyone who's a thinker, that putting up directions would probably be the most 
thoughtful thing for a thinker to do. Well, I think the whole thing about being the thinker is you really have to want it. You really have to go for it. That seems way too... I mean, she didn't even send out acceptance letters. She just hoped Hermione would show up. So... Yeah, I think she's just lazy. Oh, come on. I get this. She was just... The sun has gotten to her thinkness. (laughs) (laughs) Her thinkness. Well, she had the sign up, but then all the muggles kept showing up trying to figure out what it was, and finally she had to take the sign down. Uh, So Hermione arrives in the island, and she meets Delia. And this is pretty much exactly what I expected from the thinker. I expected the wise older woman who spoke in riddles, who could see right through Hermione's vulnerabilities, right through her insecurities, and instantly know that this is a person who has the ability to do great things. If she would just, you know, calm down and get to the point. And I think she does that. I think one of the things that you see... Delia do in this chapter is she tries to get Hermione to talk herself out. She literally sits her yeah. in a chair and says, tell me everything you know. So Hermione will well, talk. Well, because Hermione is used to the whole you know, it's the school idea. It's you are regurgitating what they teach you. And, and she's trying to encourage her to actually think. Well, this is the thing well, too. And Delia is, she's not very forthcoming. She's like, oh, you're here. And here is your bedroom, and I eat fruit. You know, and it, <laughs> I mean, I've been going, is this woman on weed? What? Well, it's so interesting. But doesn't she seem someone who's high or something? She seems like someone who is very in tune with exactly who the person is. She actually reminds me a lot of uh, Ginny when you really start to understand the abilities that Ginny has. Because think about Hermione. Hermione, like Rena said, is the book smart person who's used to absorbing information like a sponge and regurgitating it when necessary. And what's really required of her here is to create something that's not in any book. It's to do what she did with Expector Sacrificum. It is to create something. And books can't tell you how to do that. It has to be something within you. So I think she goes there armed with all of this knowledge and all of this information, but none of it will help her. So I think the first thing that Delia has to do is just kind of, you know, I hate to put it this way, but like almost like drain the swamp. You know, tap Hermione out, get her down to the basics, and let her build herself up from there. And I think that's the most important lesson that she can really offer Hermione, you know, over and above, you know, the information on how to build a spell. I think she needs to get Hermione away from the life that she's been in and just let her you know, as Renee would say, come to Jesus. I love that Delia's just telling her all this stuff, and Hermione's just kind of like, what? <laughs> here's some clothes, and here's some food, and this is not what Hermione was expecting. It was actually interesting, because this is exactly what I was expecting. This is one of the few chapters in the fic where I think I knew exactly what was going to happen before it did, and maybe, and that's not a crack of A and Z, I think that's actually showing just how much fanfic I read, but I was expecting a female Dumbledore. Almost, and that's exactly what we got. And I think it's exactly what Hermione needs. I think I was just, you know, tapping into what I thought Hermione needed, and it's exactly what uh, ANZ delivered on. And I think one thing that you do get in this chapter is you get the flashback to how Hermione thought to create Expecto Sacrificum. Because one of the things you talked about last week was exactly how is the spell built? How does it work? Does it need to be 
something that people just believe in for it to be effective, or do people actually need to act upon it and willingly sacrifice themselves? And I was very pleased to know, you know from a reader's standpoint, that it was the latter, that you actually had to make the commitment and act upon it. And we get more information on how it was uh, created, and it was actually Ron's idea, essentially. It was an offhand comment that Ron made that gave Hermione the idea. And you see the two characters playing off each other in the flashback in the common room with Harry, and they were essentially looking for something like a Patronus that amplifies happiness, and they were looking for something that would amplify love and loyalty, which is the other two traits these characters have in just total abundance. And I just thought that was very interesting. You see Harry... They're going to love him to death. They're going to love him to death. And oh, I just love that point where Ron picks up the, you know, the book on love potions and is just going through you know, the sections on sex and just un- looking under the S's. And he, he's noticing there's stars next to some, there's some underlined. I just thought that was a great moment where he was just really digging into Hermione there. And... I, I thought it was a very good portrayal of Harry. He wasn't one-dimensional. He was his normal screaming, no, how dare you sacrifice yourself for me, Harry. But he also was a realist and understood that this is something that could work. Yeah. And I always think Harry's, maybe because I just read too much fanfic and I watch him do the same thing over and over again, but I just like it when he gets past the bonehead, you know, to use your word, the bonehead uh, view that he can do this all by himself. And I think he's most interesting when he becomes aware of the fact that he just needs other people. So I thought that was a really good moment, too. I I have to point out that I really liked how the trio is showed here. Like, I really like that Harry's the one who doesn't get it and that Ron and Hermione are on the same page. You know, because yes. I think normally it's Harry and Hermione who, you know, are figuring things out and they kind of have to tell Ron in a way that he doesn't, like, go crazy or, you know, lose his temper or that kind of thing. Tell him gently he's the one that's usually the hard-headed one and on this it's not harry being hard-headed but he's absolutely refusing to look at it i was just gonna say too i think that they're perfect compliments for each other in this there's like ron you know, ron and hermione have the same idea but hermione is articulating herself so much better than ron is he even says hermione what am i trying to say here and they both kind of like work off each other very well and yeah i just I, I would agree with that i think this fic shows ron to be a very mature very in touch with reality kind of guy, you know, versus other fix where he's the cabbage head and people have to talk to him very slowly. Well, I like it too because you keep wondering what does Hermione see in Ron? You know, in a lot of fix I think they do make him the bonehead. But in this, like one, they make Ron very intellectual in this in this fic. And although he may not have the words to say what he always means, his motives and the way he goes about things are on a very intelligent level. And you kind of go, oh, that's what she sees. No, no, I agree with I think one of the strengths of After the End is it is so easy to not like Ron. I just watched Goblet of Fire, the movie, and there's, you know, entire scenes where you just want to strangle him, especially that scene, in the, <laughs> especially that scene in the Great Hall where, you know, Harry gets called into the trophy room and Ron just gives that evil, I just slashed your tires look. I mean, there's just so many ways you can I just, love that look, though. Uh, listen to my I com- love that look. Uh, listen to my commentary. On it. But, you know, it's just... I need to. He's so easy to, to, to hate. They make a really enjoyable character out of Ron, and I think this scene is just one of many that just emphasizes that. I just think it's so great. When Hermione and, and Delia are talking about 
we expect our soccer freedom spell. And Hermione's like, well, is that going to help me? I'm, I'm, I'm eager to learn. I'm ready. I'm, I'm going to research. And, you know, you get this idea that she's just jonesing to head to the you know, private library or something and start reading up on the subject. And I think Delia is trying to tell her very passively that, you know, honey, you ain't going to be able to pick it up that fast. You know? Yeah. And, and Hermione is so eager and so, you know, oh, I want to do this, I want to do this. And and I think Delia can, you can kind of see, I could right off the bat, that Hermione was going to have a lot more trouble with this than she thought she was going to. Well, Hermione's used to be, yeah. like, this is a six-month, you know, apprenticeship. And Hermione says, well, I'll read a lot faster than anyone else and I'll get it done in four. The purpose, I think, of the entire apprenticeship, and, you know, it's been a while since I read this, so I'm hoping I'm somewhat accurate here. It, this isn't a measurement of how fast you can read, how much you can absorb. The question is, how can you clear your mind, find out who you are, and completely chill yourself out to the point where you can find inspiration and build things from the ground up? And that's really hard for Hermione. The, Hermione is not a people person. Hermione is not a, you know, take, take a day off and get a massage. Hermione is, you know, a very information-oriented person, and that is exactly what she cannot be if she's going to be a thinker. So this is a huge undertaking for Hermione, and I think you're right, Ren. I don't think she has any idea that this is what she needs to, to get done, and I think Delia is being very passive about the way she's uh, she's trying to explain that to her. So then we have another one of these lovely, just complete, you know, brick wall perspective change moments that they just pepper in here so well. Very seamless transition. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Do-do-do-do-do, Charlie, you know? <laughs> this is one of my favorite scenes in the entire in the entire episode. That I, you know, I have to say that, you know, the first scene, and, and, you know, Bill's there, and Charlie shows up. And, you know, Charlie opens the door and walks in, and a bunch of air blows in and blows <laughs> up the parchment. He's like, great. And Charlie's like, okay, come on, we're five feet away. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what the scene reminded me of? It reminded me of from from the last episode you were in, Ren, how we were saying that you know every five minutes Ginny should be taken out by you know like a blind apparator. It just reminded me of that. You know, someone opens the door, everything blows over. Charlie gets up, you know, then he, he finally gets himself together. Someone opens the door again, and like everything blows over, and he just gets and he gets so. Fr- and then someone does it again. You can just tell it's like a vaudeville sketch. It just it really breaks the yeah. ice from what we've been going through, and you know the very. Can I just- I'm sorry, I was just going to point out that, like, we never actually see what Bill and Arthur and, and things are wearing, but we always know what Charlie's wearing. What's Charlie wearing this time? <laughs> well, like, he's removing his omnioculars. You just know that he's wearing his dragon outfit. Do you know what I'm Like, he always is having a prop yeah, I know. he's wearing I that, but always... They always make some comment to what Charlie's wearing. That wouldn't it be great yes. if, if Char- Bill opened the door and Charlie's towel blew in the breeze? Wouldn't that be an awesome line? That would be a good I part think of the you're, I think you're just having issues with seeing Charlie naked, Ryan. I think I am. I think I need some help with this or, one. Or reading Charlie naked, anyway. Well, it, I'm not having any but- issues at all. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm not complaining, but... I'm the one complaining that this story, the sex scenes are too G-rated. <laughs> <laughs> Lines you never expect to hear out of Jen. You expect Jen to be the very, you know, like, 
calm, cool, G-rated person. She's like, I would like more sex scenes in this story, if at all possible. Yes, more sex, please. The only reason that <laughs> the only reason I was you know taking part in this podcast was I believed the fic was rated R, and I don't believe it's actually living up to the promise that was. I not, it's not yet. I'm going. Where's the R? Yeah, there's been a couple of test words, but that's not worthy enough. Oh man. Yeah, it's a soft R rather than a hard R. Oh, yeah, it's like PG fifteen maybe. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> so Secretary Privy Rose Gay Brown shows up, and is she dating Mick yet? She has to be dating Mick. Well, they're doing it, so that's true. They were getting it on outside the party, you know, her and her clipboard. So. <laughs> Kinky. I have a feeling she used that clipboard in a very kinky way. Oh, God. <laughs> One thing, just to point out in the scene, okay, so, you know, Sirius shows up, and he's been there all day. He's been very haunted. He's been, you know, hovering over Azkaban on the broom, because you can tell there's so much that he hasn't dealt with about the 12 years that he spent there. So he comes inside, you know, opens the door, you know, drives Charlie crazy, and the Howler shows up at the same time Hedwig shows up. And my first question was, how did the Howler get there at the same time? Did she, like, express the thing? Like, I just thought, because Hedwig got a good head start. I, I get the impression that the owls don't want to be holding on to the Howlers any longer than they absolutely have to. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to blow up in air or whatever. So, of course, they open the Howler first, and... It is, of course, Ginny completely channeling her mother. And Absolutely. I and, and I love it. How could you, Charlie? You knew he'd say yes. He's been through enough already. How could you ask him to, cl- to come and fly in your damn stupid dragons and face dementors, you great big prat? And I just, and, and, and I love the, I am disgusted. Disgusted! And it just, it, I know. It, I love that. And I love when she calls him, you big dragon-loving idiot. And... And, and then she says his full name. And I am going to make your life And I love this. It's it's got to be the moment where they realize, okay, Ginny isn't a little girl. Ginny can take care of herself. And Ginny's swearing that she'll be right there. And if he goes on a dragon, she's going on a dragon. And you haven't heard the last of me. And and, and I just and I just love that the last line. You've dealt with dragons, but you haven't dealt with me. And the thing you know incinerates, and there's quiet in the room. And Mick breaks the ice with Beauregard? Yeah. <laughs> and then he answers, like, evidently he's been made fun of this name forever because he's like, he answers very testily. I thought Sirius's <laughs> reaction was very muted. I expected him to... Did, I, I was very surprised with that as well. I ex- well, Really? Well, yeah, uh, I was expecting... You mean him finding out. Him finding out. I thought that he would be very yeah. much like he was when Harry disappeared for the two days. I think Harry kind of, you know, shocked him with that one. I think he learned from that incident that Harry will do what... You know, let Harry be Harry. Harry is going to be the hero. Harry is going to make the... You know the self-sacrificing decisions, and there's nothing you can do about that. I found it muted, but I didn't find it out of character. If that first scene hadn't happened with the Dementor at the Quidditch practice, I would have been very concerned by Sirius's behavior in the scene from a writing standpoint. But I think it works well with that first scene. I really think it does. Well, I also think that I think that perhaps when Harry decides to do that, 
I think he's thinking of James at that point and that if Jenny anything resembles Lily, there's no way that Harry's going to go through with it. Jenny's going to have her way and Harry's going to do whatever to make. I don't think he's actually worried that Harry is actually going to do this. I think he thinks either Jenny or Ron or somebody, I mean, he's not really going to go through with it. So you think it's not going to happen? You just think it's a, you just think this is a Yeah, it's Harry's just being stupid and somebody will knock him in place. All right, I'm going to go with he thinks Harry's going to do it, but he is more accepting. He is more respectful of Harry based on what happened the last time he tried to cross Harry. What do you think, Ren? Perhaps Remus gave him some steps. Well, I think that the, the one thing that really catches me about this whole scene is when he says, quite frankly, Harry probably would have found his way out here without an invitation. Stupid, noble behavior is apparently a genetic trait. Yes. I think I that, that soon, I think as soon I think that as soon as Sirius found out about the PAP and the dragons, he knew Harry was going to end up out there. Regardless of what he wanted, regardless of what was best for Harry, he was going to end up out there riding the dragons. And Sirius has had time to kind of resign himself to this because obviously this is what, this is what James would have done. Well, it's interesting, too, because Sirius has been up on a broom over Azkaban all day, and you wonder what he's been thinking. We don't get that scene from his perspective. But he's got to be thinking that his life is completely linked to Azkaban. He's got to be thinking that he, he must have been, you know, thinking back to the Marauders. He must have been thinking a lot about Harry, too. I wasn't here for Harry because I was trapped in this godforsaken place as he looks down on it. And I, I wonder if he was actually having one of those conversations in his head that you were just talking about. You have to wonder, was he thinking about his... Because the other thing to think of, too, is he's so excited that Harry's coming for the summer, and then he gets so occupied with work that he completely neglects Harry for the entire summer. And the only real moment these two, you know, I'm going to call them relatives, you know, godfather and godson, they're as close to family as either of them has. And the only moment they have together is a screaming match over Harry's sacrifices and, you know, how he doesn't feel respected for, you know, the, the sacrifices that he makes. That had to have been yeah. dwelling on Sirius all day. And then he finds out that the world's in trouble again and Harry's going to come save the day. I just think he's in a different place than he was in before, and he's like, you know what? What am I going to do about it? Well, I just think this scene is so... I would have liked to, to understand Sirius's response a little bit better. I don't... I think it's too open, and he didn't act any which way enough for us to get a very good stand on him. Like, he's just kind of there, but it really doesn't revolve around his reaction at all. And I realize that it's probably because it's focusing on Bill and Charlie's reaction to Jenny's growing up and that kind of stuff. But uh, I could have I could have used some more serious... One thing to think of, too, is he finds out about this in a screaming howler that you know Jenny sent in defense of Harry. You have to wonder if some of the anger Sirius would have felt was actually tapped out by Ginny because Ginny said it better than Sirius ever could have. And maybe on some level Sirius is you know taken aback by you know what Harry's about to do, but he realizes there's other people who are already on it. And I, th- I think it's a combination of everything. I think it's just Sirius in a different place than he was in before. And I think it's him recognizing that Ginny's on it. And 
there are people who love him as much as Sirius does, and they're going to get his back. And maybe he won't go through with it, but... Oh, I was just saying, like, this is how Sirius has been throughout this entire story. Like, he's not acting the role of Godfather. You know, he's like, well, somebody else is going to take care of it. Somebody else is there for Harry. And it really bugs me that at this, at finally, he's like, okay, well, my excuse this week is going to be, I'm going to treat Harry like the adult he is. I'm not going to be step in as the Godfather parent role because... This is just another excuse to get me out of it. And moving on with chapter 20, just so you know, Rinna uh, just had to drop out of the conversation. She is on call for work and had to skedaddle. So, uh, Jen, do you think we can handle these two really important chapters, just the two of us? I hope so. We'll do our best. We'll do our very best. Poor Rinna. And if you know what, if we if we completely miss the point and we leave out very important details, uh, email Rinna at PotterfectWeekly.com and ask her to get another job so she can be here to, to better supervise <laughs> Jen and myself. Very good. Very, very good. good. All right. Chapter 20, the big one, the chapter I have been editing myself out of for the past five episodes because I've been accidentally spoiling this chapter and I just don't want to have to worry about that anymore. This is the big reveal on Ginny, and the mm-hmm. most fascinating thing about yay! this chapter... <laughs> you're like, yay, we can finally <laughs> talk about it. But here's the most interesting <laughs> thing about chapter 20. It's not from Ginny's perspective for the important reveal, and I thought that was a very fascinating way to write it. It, it was very unpredictable, and it actually took me until the second read-through to catch that, because... I was making a list of all the questions I had about Ginny's uh, response to the news. Then I realized, wouldn't this be nice if we actually could hear Ginny's reaction to the news firsthand? But we don't. We get the chapter from uh, Remus's perspective. What do you think of that? I thought it was fabulous. Like, I really liked I'm like you, though. I think I read it a couple of times before it even dawned on me that it wasn't in her perspective. Yeah. And I think I... I think it was so neat because you, all of us have been suspecting, and obviously Ramus is the one so far that has been having the foreshadowing, like he's kind of been the one that's kind of been going, hmm, something is interesting, and then, you know, does his, like, quirky finger touching, and, uh, <laughs> the all that kind of stuff, and walks away, yeah. and, um, and so I think it was perfect that it was in his perspective because he's the only one that seems to know what's going on. And also, I think it was a good way to show us we actually get to see Jenny's reaction to it. Not not just like the thoughts in her head, but we actually get to see Remus watch her absorb this information. And I thought it was just a really fantastic way to go about it. I One of the reasons I would have appreciated, and let me just preface this, I love the way that ANZ wrote this chapter. I love the fact that we really have to work at it and we really have to read between the lines to get Ginny's thoughts on this. Of course we get them later. Of course we have more uh, sections from Ginny's perspective, but just initially when the bombshell is dropped, we don't get to hear Ginny give an internal an inner monologue on what happened. We really have to read between the lines. And I had a lot of questions when I was reading it. Ginny seems to pull into herself a lot. She seems to, you know, kind of She seems to be looking, you know, out the window. She seems to be almost glad to know that something is up with her. 
it reminds me oh, of, okay. of it reminds me of someone who knows that they're sick but doesn't know what they have and when they finally find out what they have they feel a calm because okay now there's a name for it yeah and it acknowledges in- that something's going on right and it's interesting because this isn't something she's had all of her life this is something she's only had literally for the past four months you know traumatic events bring this on well, let me actually take that back we don't get a sense yet whether or not this is something that Jenny's had you know, since her first year, since she was in the Chamber of Secrets, if that was the traumatic event that brought this on, or if it was the confluence of that and the Expecto Sacrificum spell, if that was what brought it on. But you get the sense... Oh, just really? From, yeah, I, I wasn't exactly sure if this is something she's been aware of her entire time at Hogwarts or not. Maybe I just need to, to give it a third read Maybe. to catch that. Uh, but, you know, just by reading it, it's very, you know, interesting. She almost seems to be, you know... We're trying to imagine what she's thinking. She almost seems to be thinking back and allowing this new information to explain a lot of things that has happened. And one of the interesting Mm -hmm. uh, quotes that she had, which I jotted down here, was when she is going through, you know, the list of, of things that, you know, a healer could potentially cure. She seems to single out madness or death. And that seems to be something very much in the forefront. Like, she's very, you know, issues of madness and death are, are very important to her. And she almost snidely remarks that, you know, there's just some things that, you know, are permanent that can't be touched. And I understand her relation to death. You know, her brother has died. She herself has almost died many times. She almost watched her father and her lover die. I get that. I wasn't sure on madness. That almost seemed like a comment that would have been you know, more apt coming from Hermione. I wasn't sure why, I wasn't sure why she jumped out there with madness as though that was something very personal to her. I just, I I was a little unclear on that. I thought it fit perfectly because, you know, it later explains what the difference between a Medowitch, is it called Medowitch? It's Medowitch, yeah. uh, Traditional, um, you know, healthcare providers are Medowitches. Yes. Well, a Medowitch between, the differences between a Medowitch and a healer is that a healer fixes illness and things, and a healer can fix things that nobody else, there's not a cure for. And I thought it was just a very natural tendency for her to go towards madness and death and things that are not common things that people can get cured from. Um, I think in some way, maybe it's a foreshadowing to herself that whatever the healer is, like I think she says that right after it's it's very vaguely explained what she does, um, but not specifically. Yeah, he mentions empathic magic, but he doesn't get into the fact that she's a healer. And you know what? You're correct. Uh, Her her reference to madness and death was a bit earlier in the chapter. I'm just looking it up here. It was when he is talking about, you know, Madame Pomfrey and Meta Witches. She says, she, she says under her breath, you know, not madness or death. They can't cure madness or death. And that implied to me that these were two things, you know, just very important to her. These were two things that touched her deeply. And, you know, simple meta witches could not fix these two. And and I guess that was my question. You know, I can see death. Or maybe it's innate in her. Maybe. I just, I was curious why she brought up madness itself. That, That, you know, that just seemed a little out of place. But I got the sense of reading that, that she was talking about herself and she was talking about how, you know, she has suffered, you know, all of this loss and all of these terrible things have happened to people that she cares about and you know the mother wizards out there can't fix it and she's a little and she's a little angry about that she you know there's some things that you just can't fix some things that happen to you that are irreparable and i i I just wasn't sure where she was 
you know, finding the, you know, to mumble it under her breath as though it's something she's a little pissed off about. I just wasn't sure how she got madness there. Well, but maybe in the wizarding world, those are one and the same because people don't come back from them. I mean, you're either tortured to death with some kind of spell and you never come out of it or you die and you're never alive again. You know what I mean? Yeah. So maybe like, yeah, I mean, just- yeah, I got that from the long bottoms. I got that from, you know, the Grangers. Yeah, I just I just yeah. wasn't really sure how that impacted the Weasley family at all. I didn't get the sense. Unless, you know, she's referencing the fact that, you know, Percy underwent the Cruciatus curse, you know, until maybe he was driven mad. Yeah, he was tortured. Yeah, although you got, you got the sense but, that he kind of died before, you know, there was any... Um, <laughs> we hope. We, we, we hope. Yeah, it's kind of like with Fleur. She it had horrible. Her. Yeah, well, it's like, yeah. The, it's like the scene earlier with Fleur. She, she hopes to God her sister was killed quickly, which is just an awful thing yeah. to think. But yeah, that was just a little weird. And it, it, it was odd because I got the sense from Ginny that she was, you know, connecting in her head, okay, you know, if I'm a healer, then, then this makes sense. Then, you know, then this makes sense. Now I'm thinking back on that. Right. And that oh, moment. I would have just liked to known what she was actually, because you got the sense she was doing that. I'm just not sure what, you know, maybe she was thinking back to, you know, hitting the invisible wall at Hogwarts uh, during the wedding or after the wedding. Challenge, you know, somebody could write a fanfic about Jenny's actual point of view in this scene and talk about what she's thinking. I think that's an excellent point, And I think I would have really enjoyed knowing what she was, thinking about too but i I think i still like it where we're actually watching her work through it rather than a by a fly by what she's actually thinking i don't know i I would just like to add that we're not asking jules from our potherfic weekly forum to write the one shot jules sent in a letter of complaint apparently we've assigned her 17 fanfics to write and we've only been here five episodes so (laughs) if anyone other than jules would like to you know write that one shot uh she is particularly jules is you know barred from writing it so just <laughs> poor jules i love We're jules sorry. i'm sorry jules. <laughs> I <need to. laughs> that's so sad i didn't realize yes i did i think i was doing it on purpose because it was humorous <laughs> jules never mind please write this fake <laughs> 18 okay we should keep a running tally of all the work we staff out to jules without her even you know offering to volunteer for us um, exactly. One thing that did just jump out at me at the scene too, you know, Remus takes the book and gives it to her, you know, and and spells out that that Ginny is the rarest of the rare, and you know, I get the sense that there are many healers in the world, but none of them really know that they're healers because they never go through the the torment in their lives that brings it about. The, the two, you know, previous known healers died off during uh, the war with with the Dark Wizard Grindelwald, and. Jenny at this point would be both one of the youngest healers ever and the only healer known in the planet. This right. is this is big stuff to dump on a seventeen year old. Yeah. And then he says, it. and we'll cover this tomorrow at three, take out your charms book. I'm like, what? <laughs> I know. I really like I thought this was terrible. <laughs> just horrible of him. Because I, mean, I would have been yeah, I didn't like that particular Let's get back to school. Let me, you know, I really thought it would have been better had he actually just like said, okay, today we're going to have a talk. We're not going to actually start school. Or he could have done it yesterday. You know what I mean? Instead of just going, here you go, dump. Okay, let's open your charms book. <laughs> well, <laughs> I can strangle him. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you're going to strangle him and not kick him. I'm glad to know that you're moving away from kicking our favorite characters here. <laughs> you know, I just got the sense to... It- <laughs> 
you know, when you think about it, you can understand, you know, teachers don't want to hand out exams during class because then, you know, the kids are going to be reading them and not paying attention. You know, life-changing thing. You're, you know, the only person in the history of the world to ever accomplish this. You know, you can follow that up with take five. Right. Or dwell on this. Get some juice. You know, it just it just seems like put the book away. And then she's reading the book, and he's like, "Put the book away." And you're just like, "Oh, Remus, stop it! Come on." I didn't like Remus of this chapter. I well, I kind of got the fact of that, that he, part. <laughs> no, I kind of got the fact that Remus knew what he was doing and knew that it was something that, even though I think Remus got that, even though this is something extraordinary for Ginny, she's still an ordinary student. He's gonna train her on this, but she still has to worry about the rest of her life. She's not going to be treated any differently than she was before, even though she has these gifts. She's on a long road to learn how to use them. She's kind of like Hermione. She thinks if she reads fast, she can get there faster. But, you know, right. I, I, I'm not going to say I didn't like Remus here. I just That's thought a good that, point. I'm going to say I thought that was an interesting choice on Remus's part, much like it was an interesting choice you know, on Ainsley's part to write this chapter from Remus's perspective. Oh no! I think this is a very interesting start to the chapter. Let's see how many times maybe, I can use the word "interesting." Now. No, no, it's good. I, I, and I was—you got me to thinking that maybe it was just him giving her, you know, the time to absorb it without focusing on it, as well as it, trying to show her that um, it's something that yes, he's just like finished the puzzle that she's been going through and. It's going to be a lifelong thing, and there's no need to just rush it today. Maybe he was just trying to... And that's a good point. I really like that. Well, even look at it this way. He just essentially told her that her entire life is now planned. You are a healer. You are the one. You're the only person in the world who can do this. You know, No one else in your lifetime may be able to do this. You're going to face another dark wizard in your lifetime. The last people who had this gift when a dark wizard was in power were killed for it. This is pretty heavy-duty stuff to drop on a 17-year-old. I guess so. I guess I never thought of it that way. That he did just go, here's your life. I mean, here's you, your career. I mean, you know. But I guess he did, kind of. Yeah, like, here's the thing. Who gets told you're the only person in the world who has the special gift? You're never going to be, you know, left alone. People are always going to be needing you for what you're able to do. You never tell someone that and then have them go, hmm, you know what? I really want to be a massage therapist. <laughs> like, that's pretty much it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I want to be an investment yeah. banker. You know what I mean? You don't really see that from there. So it really takes a lot of your uh, decision-making away. It really kind of boxes. But she doesn't argue the point. Like, maybe it's just a part of her. And, like, it's just one of those things that even if she wasn't told what she was, she's still going from A to B. She just skipped a few steps in getting there. I think she should become a landscaper. A la- what? I think she should what? become a landscaper. I think she should you know, throw caution to the wind and say, I will not have fate, you know, tell me what I can do. I want I want to work with trees. No. Not happening? It's perfect. Okay. It's perfect how it is. Did you like landscaper. it? Landscaper. Did you like it when she thought that he was trying to tell her to be a meadow wizard? And she's like, um, I don't think that's I'm not very for good me. At I think I kill half of my patients. I don't think that's really. I can't believe you want her to be a landscaper. Like, where did that come from? That actually came from the uh, commentary for uh, Chamber of Secrets. Have you had the chance to listen to it yet? I haven't. Like, I haven't watched it because I haven't. I seem to have lost that DVD. I okay. have to buy it again. The um, Danielle and I on the 
Danielle and I did the commentary of uh, the first, second, and fourth uh, Harry Potter movies. They're up on PotterfectWeekly.com on the downloads page. And during the uh, the second movie, when uh, Lucius runs into Arthur at Flourish and Blots, he makes a reference to, I'll see you at work. And then I'm like, well, what does Lucius actually do for work? And then we were joking, you know, we thought he was independently wealthy, but maybe he has a job. And I was joking, he's either a landscaper or one of those people that calls up asking if you're happy with your long-distance carrier. So... I just thought maybe uh, Jenny could take after, you know, Lucius and, you know, fill the gap by his unfortunate (laughs) demise and perhaps, you know, get out there and landscape the wizarding community, but whatever. Oh, that's funny. One point I want to touch on is when Jenny realizes she's a healer, you can kind of see see the, the wheels in her head turning a little bit. And she says, can I cure the Grangers? And Remus doesn't really know how to respond to that. He doesn't want to give her hopes up. He doesn't want to imply this is something she can use tomorrow. So he becomes Professor Lupin and very logically lays out a very, you know, structural framework for her to build up her, you know, quote unquote powers, her abilities and to harness them, you know, starting with plants and animals and, you know, eventually one day she you know, can work with people. And there's no telling what she could do, which is a very, right. you know, it's a very technical response to the question. And then she says, can I cure you from being a werewolf? Oh. And his I re- was like, yes, hopefully. Yeah. And, and you can tell, but- I, I love the wording they use. There's a little bit of hope in his voice. He wants to say, you know, not too fast, but this isn't the same type of question because as much as he feels for Hermione, he's the one who goes through this hell every month and she's offering to fix him. Yes. So at the same time, and I have to say this, after reading the Bacon stuff, you know, they don't ever talk about it, but I don't see why not. Eventually, they couldn't come back to it. That's why I'm like, I think a sequel would have so many, so many things they could go into and about them getting older, getting, using this more often and becoming, you know, really full time at it. And eventually, you know, finding a cure for Remus and, and, or not finding a cure because I don't think she works that way. But do you know what I mean? Fixing I, him. I got the sense from reading this, and obviously we're, you know, I'm not, not going to spoil what happens next, but let's just put it this way. I get the sense from the question that this is something that can't be fixed. You know, in the Harry Potter universe, death is permanent. In, in being a werewolf, having that condition, whereas every month you become the wolf as a result of having been bit, you know, by a werewolf, that's something that you just can't, you know, cure with "quote unquote" healer therapy. And I get. This I guess I don't just see why. Why not? I get well, and obviously we're going to get this in, into this in later chapters. I get the sense that Ginny's abilities are to help people heal themselves. And she's almost able to have, you know, a sixth sense about these things. And she's able to see where problems are and help them on their natural course to being healed. I get the sense that there is no cure for what Remus has. So there's nothing that Jenny could do for him. Remus knew that too, but he was also hopeful because here's someone who can do what no one else can do. And she is devoted to him and wants to help him. And she's already helped him tremendously. So maybe she could do this. But I get the sense that Remus doesn't really believe it. And to be frank, I don't believe it either. Without giving anything away for future chapters, I, I guess maybe later on, if they decided to do a sequel, cross his fingers and hopes, um, that maybe she could help Remus come to terms with it. Which, I mean, I think he obviously has accepted that he's a werewolf, but in previous chapters, he's really 
depressed about it. He doesn't like being a werewolf. He won't accept it. He won't talk to his other werewolf companions is not yeah. the right word. His, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Uh, so maybe she can do some healing in him in, in a future fit. I get the sense that, that kind that, of thing. You know what? That's what she probably could help him with. I get the sense that she, yeah. she could, she could help Remus deal with the repercussions of being a werewolf. I just have a feeling that she can't fix it. And to be honest, from a literary standpoint, I'm glad of that. Uh, I believe it's Melinda Leo wrote at the end of one of her fics. I believe it was after uh, Curse of the Damned, which is an excellent fic. I really yeah. want to cover it on the podcast. It's a good one. You who haven't it's read a good it. one. Uh, there's a comment she makes at the end of her fic, which essentially says that, you know, I've done many things in the story, but, you know, the long bottoms are still, you know, comatose and Remus is still a werewolf. And, and then she goes on to list some other, you know, staples of the Harry Potter canon. You know, I fixed some things, but this is still a real world, and sometimes you just can't cure everything. I kind of get that sense, too. From a literary standpoint, I don't want Ginny to be the ultra-powerful healer who can, you know, do anything up into and including, you know, you know, bringing, you know, Remus about and making him fully human again and making him no longer a dark creature. I don't know if I want Ginny to have that power, because one of the strengths I find in this story is that crappy things happen to very good people. And you have to learn to yeah. live with that. And life isn't fair. Some times, you know, the, 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 the worst amongst us win. And sometimes the best amongst us have to go through enormous trials. I think that's one of the strengths of the canon as well. If you think to Half-Blood Prince, you have Harry and Dudley, you know, in the same room. And Dumbledore comments to the Dursleys, you know, I would have hoped you would have treated Harry better. But thank God you didn't mistreat him as you mistreated your own. You know, Harry's right. stronger for everything he went through, and I think Remus can equally be strong by everything he's forced to go through. And I think it, he gets down sometimes, he gets depressed about it sometimes, but I think right. Remus is one of the strongest characters in the story. And that is based on, for everything he's lost, he's also gained very much. And I think, I don't... No, I, no go ahead. I completely agree with everything you're saying. I mean, people deal with the lives that they're given and the ones that we enjoy reading about are when they overcome them. And I think that Arabella and Jinya, um, you want to try that again? Sorry. I think it's Jinya. Yes. Jinya. I think when Arabella and Jinya wrote after the end, I think they capture that so well. I mean, I know we've said that a thousand times already on this podcast, that they capture real life and they capture but that's what makes this story so appealing. The fact that every character in this fic has, has been dealt with this crappy, something really crappy. Um, and they have to deal with it. And not only do they deal with it, they overcome it and are better for it. And I think that is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I like to read. So, of course, we have Lunch in the Great Hall which is a great staple of this chapter. You have everyone ending up at the crack-ass of dawn. You know, they have breakfast with Ginny just so she wouldn't feel as though she's missing out on her seventh year, which I thought was a great, you know, moment between all of them. And you have Ron, yeah. you know, at the table, you know, with bags under his eyes, you can picture, you know, in his pajamas, which Molly would be scandalized, you know, that he's wearing in front of women. And, you know... Her- <laughs> His sister. His sister. Not wearing his dress robes, you know, at you know nine o'clock in the morning. Um, 
I love that too. Isn't there a, a reference to, you know, this early in the morning and they're like, it's quarter of nine. Like, dude, come on. Yeah, well, he's saying I climb out of bed at the crack of dawn and she's like, quarter to nine is not the crack of the dawn. <laughs> and like, he just continues, the crack of dawn. <laughs> I love after the end run. <laughs> oh, and everyone, just to point this out too, um, you know, everyone is carrying around pictures of little Leo with them, and they all think he's the cutest kid to ever be born. And I have to tell you that I actually, uh, this afternoon went to my cousin's baby's first birthday party, and she is the cutest baby ever born. So <laughs> there's a lot of that apparently going around. And I, I just think it's a really, it's just a great moment. There's a lot of little layers to this chapter. You have everyone excited about the baby, and you have everyone, you know, doing this special thing, you know, to make Ginny feel happy and they're still bickering with each other and there's about to be this huge bombshell drop to Ginny, you know, in class. I just I just really like this chapter. There's so much going on here. Okay, I just want to ask, where is Ron apparating from? I mean, he's just there and Ginny picks up a piece of toast and then realizes something, I don't know what, and she goes, did you apparate here like that? She points at Ron's pajamas and he's like, what, I'm covered? And, like, he goes on, she just goes on, and, and he goes, you sound like Hermione. <laughs> yeah, because at this and point, like, they don't, at this point, they don't have the notch yet. Right. I'm We're, trying to think, in the last chapter, did they go somewhere? No, Ron uh, is sobbing uncontrollably at the end of the chapter, because Hermione left, and then you wake up in the morning, and... That's right. So, and he walks to work. I mean, maybe he apparates yeah. now, maybe. Did, did he apparate from but the bedroom? But then he said... <laughs> Where the hell did Ron come from? Know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I have never noticed that before. Jenya, you That's... wrote the best fic in the history of fandom. Jen worships this thing that she she sleeps with her copy of After the End. At least one of her forum members has gone to Kinko's and you know had a professionally produced copy of this fic. Yes. Please tell us where Ron was that morning. We're very concerned. We don't know where he came from. <laughs> I was actually thinking, reading it again, that he was at the notch, but you're right. He wasn't, though. Maybe he was at another friend's house. Well, I think we just have to stop the podcast now, because I, I, I can't go on. <laughs> I know! Where was he? He wouldn't operate from bed, would he? He gets up at the crack of dawn. No. He climbs out of bed. Well, it's Fred and George would have, but I didn't get the sense that did you apparate downstairs like that? I mean, are you supposed to get in your tuxedo before you apparate down? Like, Hermione, did they didn't leave from uh, the borough, did they? No, they were at Lupin Lodge because they slept upstairs in uh, in the room because Jenny was on the couch. Well, this is a pickle. I know. I'm really like maybe we're missing something out. I love, how we just complete, I, I love how we just completely derailed the podcast because we can't figure out where Ron came from. <laughs> Wait, I've got to go back. This, no, that couldn't possibly make a mistake like that. Something yeah. noticed, like, and I have to admit that I go through this and I have only found like, three typos in the whole thing. All right, Junior, I hope this isn't a mistake or else we're about to And I can't believe I've Jen. never missed this. We're about to listen to Jen come apart here, you know, right on the podcast. So I'm hoping there's a reason. Did you apparate here? Like I that? am. Okay, I'm going to start crying in this chapter. All right. You know what? There's a pl- okay. Here's <laughs> like here's the thing. The world, 
not round. Here's the thing. Ron apparated to the mailbox to get the morning post and apparated back. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever. It was a missing no, moment taken out during the production of After the End because wait, the fit was too wait, long. Wait, 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 wait. The I'm last thing that happens. Okay, the last thing that happens is the baby is born. Yes, the baby. They went to see the baby, and he went to the burrow, and that's where they were. They were at the burrow. Yes, Yes, because they have pictures of Leo. Yes, okay. There is a picture. Yes. They talk about it. I can't believe it. (laughs) We're leaving that entire thing in there uncut, because we just completely went off... Unhinged. <laughs> We're leaving that all in there. Moving on with the baby. Moving on with chapter twenty. It's now lunchtime. Why didn't Jenny go? She had class at night. No, she did go because okay. she saw no, the baby. It's she, well, they went the night before. No, I guess he just did. He just stay longer. No, ma- ma- maybe her it class was. Make sense. No, her class wasn't that morning. Probably this is probably the next day. Okay, I have to say that oh, hold on, even though hold we on, know hold on, that we, he was with the baby. We have to stop. We have to stop. We have to stop. No, this is probably okay. the next day. This is probably the next day because uh, Ginny Lee. No, because Ginny sends the howler the day after. Okay, her Ginny sends the howler. The howler gets to Azkaban. The baby's born, and that's after Hermione leaves. Right? Hermione's gone. No, yeah. I'm sorry. Hermione's been. Yeah, she sends she sends the howler. Hermione leaves. The howler reaches Azkaban. The baby's born, and now it's like the next day. So this is days later. Okay, that that all makes okay, sense. Okay, I. I do want to say, though, that even though we know where Ron was, it still does not make sense why he climbs out of bed and then shows up unless they stayed at the borough, which they must have stayed at the borough. I think they stayed at the borough. Okay. Oh, I'm going to search for the word borough. Please, God, be in here. I know, but I've I've just, it's not, it's not in there. It is, and I'm going to find it for you just after we're done. (laughs) Are you serious? Wait, what's going this on? Hands in her hips, hurt. she turned to Ron. I thought you were staying over at home. Why are you awake? That's gratitude for you. Quarter of nine in the morning. He did the apparated from the borough. Moving uh, on. I see. Moving on. It's lunchtime. Yay! It is, we figured it out. Oh, God. It is lunchtime now. <laughs> okay, this is after Jenny has found out that she is, in fact, a healer. And it's very big news. She needs some lunch. But she doesn't eat because she's too absorbed in reading. Ginny really morphs into Hermione in this chapter, don't you think? Dude, she channels her. Totally. Totally channels Hermione. Yep. Arabella and they they decided that we needed a Hermione replacement while Hermione was gone so that we would not have a fright in reading. Well, yeah, it's really helpful to have that one person in the room who's completely engrossed in the book. It's really helpful for you. Know, just the, yes. The if it wasn't Ginny... Remus had better been in a book. This is true. And one of the things that uh, you had, you and I had talked about on the forums uh, this week was that there are very close similarities between Hermione and Remus, just in terms of the old Marauders yeah. versus the, you know, the, the quote-unquote, you know, the trio and Ginny and all of them. Hermione and Remus are the most alike. I just think it's very interesting that Ginny and Remus are put together you know, in this fic, and they're almost like the odd yeah. couple who have to work with each other. It was just, I think that was interesting writing. I think it would have been more bland if it was Hermione in there, but I just thought that was interesting, too, that you see now. Well, actually, Ginny take on a lot of Hermione's traits in this chapter. She's in the finish, you know, her studies early. She's going to, 
know, get there by reading more than anyone else would have and just, you know, engrossing herself in something. I, I just really think she, uh, as Hermione has to become less like herself to become a thinker, Ginny has to become more like Hermione to become a healer. I think that's a very interesting contrast is they're both happening at the same time. That's a lovely way that you put that, Ryan. There we go. Hey, we're moving right along here. I was going to say that I thought it was so interesting. I, Hermione gets things so easily. You know, she hears it once, she reads it once, it's in memory, she can spout it off to anybody at any given time. Ginny has to work at it really hard. Like, I, you know, she doesn't just pick things up completely naturally, and she it, it irks her when she can't just pick something up. And I think that I see Remus like that, too. I don't see Remus as one... I see Sirius and maybe James Potter as one to have just picked something up and get it the first try. But I see Remus as someone who worked hard for what he's earned. Um, and, and I liked that, I, I liked that this was something that Jenny came across as similar to Remus, finding something new. And, and yeah, she does, she's asked, she acts like Hermione in that Hermione gets obsessed with something and like won't put it down until she's absolutely covered everything. So I don't know. I think there's little there's little traits of all three that Jenny shows. All two, I guess. So it's lunch at the borough. We have Ron's perspective. We have yes. you know, Jenny engrossed in her book. We have Harry eating, you know, his lunch. And it's starting to get to Ron that Hermione's not here and he's being sued by Draco Malfoy. And you have Sirius pop home for lunch because he forgot his money pouch and he's engrossed, you know, with, you know, work down at, you know, the ministry, you know, as he's heading up, you know, the, the he's essentially the attorney general of the wizarding world, you know, which, you know, good for him. And yeah. it's interesting, too, because they really play around with the fact that the, the classic canon relationship, you know, Sirius and Harry, which so many fanfics are so engrossed with, especially those, you know, that are sixth year alternate universe fix. You know, Harry is just so devastated by the loss of Sirius. Sirius was everything to him and he's gone. Now you have, you know, a serious fic, you know, with a with an eye. You have a serious fic and I knew you were gonna do that. You have a serious fic with Harry and th- th- these are the two characters that you hardly ever see together up until this point. I mean, you have Jimmy and mm-hmm. Remus, you know, and you have all these, you know, different combinations of characters. You know, they, they barely, they're barely acquaintances at this point. It's, you know, Godfather and Godson, and they barely even interact. And, yeah. you know, as, you know, it, they really play around with, you know, the canon dynamic. You have Draco Malfoy is now officially Ron's problem. He's no longer Harry's. And Sirius and Ron are actually the ones who develop a relationship. Yeah. Sirius. It's very strange. I like it. I like it. But it's strange. (laughs) You have, you know, Sirius recognizing the fact that Ron is petrified that something's going to happen and that, you know, he could potentially, you know, do jail time. He offers, well, let me take you to work, you know, with me for a day. Come to the ministry and see how it's all going on there so you you can be prepared for your trial. So Ron really likes that idea. And he Is takes, he the one that offers it, or does Lupin say, "Why don't you take Ron with you"? Um, or is so, that later? Maybe that's later. Sirius does. Sirius does offer it. Sirius, Sirius offer, does. Yeah. You're right. You have Sirius offer to bring Ron down to the Ministry to show him how the legal system works, and so he won't, you know, be petrified as he walks in there. 
you know, on the day of the trial, which is a great way to bring us the readers to the ministry and really flesh out what's happening to Sirius. Because Sirius is largely absent from this fic. He's at work all the time. You don't see what's going on with him. You don't see a lot from his perspective, you know, aside from, you know, a three-paragraph short you know, at the beginning of, I believe, chapter 8, you really don't get a lot from Sirius's perspective. So this is a way to bring him in there and bring Ron in there, because these two are just developing, you know, a very close bond in this fic, so it's a good way to expand mm-hmm. on that as well. I wanted to bring up where Ron is making the stew. I love the part where Ron is making the stew, and that he's the one that is making it, and it's so natural, and he's so natural in the kitchen, and it's so manly, and yet... You know, I I don't know how to say. I don't know. I love the fact doesn't he start cleaning the table off too? Like he's at work, but, he's just used to the the kitchen type of. Yes. Well, I just think it's funny that him, the one who always is struggling with his masculinity, is the one that is like in the kitchen and makes the food and cleans up the house and like I can just see him as you know the at home dad that does it all. <laughs> Would that be part of your sequel that you want written to this book? Exactly, yes. Well, I hear he also makes a mean cup of coffee. Yeah, you know, and he does everything in such a masculine way. I love it. I think that, uh, I can't remember who the actor was that was in it, but I think A and Z, when writing this fic, were watching Mr. Mom on television. And they just you know, were they? inspired for the, by the character of, uh, I can't remember the character's name, but they were inspired and they, they brought portions of that into the character of Ron. So Ron <laughs> decides to leave uh, Lupin Lodge. So he takes a walk down, you know, down the road. And runs into yeah. one of my favorite OCs so far, and this is including Secretary Privy Rose K. Round and Mick, runs into Mr. Archibald. Yes, I, I like lo- Mr. Archibald. He's He's got like four lines in the whole thing. I love Mr. Archibald. <laughs> and, you know, right in these four chapters, I try not to make, um, on my notes, I try not to put quotes in because I'll just fill the thing up and I'll have no basis to, you know, comment on them. You know, doing the podcast. <laughs> the only one I actually put in here was from Mr. Archibald because he's just such a fun character. And you can tell Ron runs into him and almost takes him out, you know, much like Ginny and the apparition problems she's been having. <laughs> and, you know, of course, you know, he, he's trying to rent out, you know, his flat and, you know, it's, it's not easy in the eyes, but with a little tender loving care and some paint, you know, it could be a great place. And it's right down the street from Lupin Lodge and he needs to, you know, it's oh. like neon turquoise. <laughs> it is, and the brown paint is peeling, and there's more neon turquoise under it. <laughs> and Ron looks at it and thinks home. And uh, yeah, of course. And I love it the makes fa- me one. It makes me wonder if the burrow is like bright orange or something. <laughs> His room is, but I love the fact too that Mister, yeah. you know, he asks how much would you do you need for rent, and he like equates it to how much you know liquor can I buy per month. <laughs> And, um, and of course, he, you know, he makes, I think, three references to the fact it's a nice place to bring your woman. <laughs> like, it's like the 80 year old guy saying, I know what you're going to do with this place. Oh, really? A- I saw him, like, as 150. Like, I saw him as Dumbledore's age. Oh, he like could be. He could freak- be. A muggle 80, yeah. you know, a wizarding 150. But I just picture, you know, this ancient guy whose time has passed, and he looks at Ron, and he's like, you have a woman, go have some fun. And I just thought that was, he He just he just cracked me up. I loved it. He's like, you want a place to entertain the ladies? 
I remember those days, and Mr. Archibald stared off into the distance, his eyes slightly weepy, as if remembering something that Ron figured he'd probably rather not know more about. I just love whoever, you know, whether this was A or Z who wrote this, you know, great job. I love Mr. Archibald, and he has, I think, three lines in the entire fic, but I will always remember Mr. Archibald when I think of After the End. So well, I just, I just great. I really loved that when Mr. Archibald is like, yeah, you... Uh, will there be a, uh, oh, what do you call, what do young people call them now? We have a flatmate. And he's like, yeah, my friend Harry. And like, and he's like, holy crap. Harry Potter's going to live in my old house. <laughs> and you can tell he's running around to all the old guys at the bar, you know, and hogs me when he gets there. Harry Potter is living in my bedroom. And they're all looking at him like, huh? Like, you can just tell. You can just tell that that's going to happen. I just, I just thought that was. so cute. Yeah, because but... old people always like news. You know, they love news to share. And. And that just gives him news, and I, I think it's perfect. Well, he's 150. He doesn't have much going on, I'm sure. <laughs> like, whenever Spice No more ladies. I love the fact, too, my, my daughter wants me to move in with me. My daughter wants me to move in with her. I, she's t- telling me I always forget my wand, and of course he doesn't have his wand on him. So she... <laughs> I just, thought, I just, I just that love that that's what, that's what the wizarding old people have to forget. Yeah. Their wand. They're not terrible drivers. I, have an I hope elder- they don't apparate. I have an elderly aunt who, every time she tries to change her television station, she uses her cordless phone. So you know what? You know, oh, wh- no. Whatever the wizards do. is Well, she calls me every time she tries to put the TV on because she has redial. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. That's hysterical. All right. So... Moving on, and I love the fact, too, I think you were the one to reference it back in, I believe it was back in Chapter 16, you commented that Arthur was kind of treating Ron like a kid, you know, saying he should sleep in when Ron is, of course, a man and, you know, can make his own decisions. I love the fact that Ron puts, you know, his best, you know, foot forward and is very formal with Mr. Archibald, and Mr. Archibald gets the fact that this is a kid trying to act like an adult, or who maybe is an adult for the first time. I just like that Ron really was trying to be as professional as he could. I thought that was a really interesting... I thought it hysterical that Ron is the one that's like, yeah, me and Harry are going to move out. And Harry's just like shrugging. And then he goes and finds them a place to live. And is Harry there? Does he have a say? No, but that's okay. <laughs> Harry's like, whatever. <laughs> like, I beat Voldemort, yeah, you know. I'm here. Dude, wherever I live isn't really a priority for me. I've got enough going on in my life. <laughs> I'm not going to know this. I'm not going to know this where I live anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Being like the ditchiest person, he's just like, yeah, okay, like one of those hippieish guys that you know is on weed all the time. Like, yeah, okay, that's cool. It reminds me of uh, President Bartlett from The West Wing. Where am I going now? You're pardoning a turkey. Okay, like <laughs> whatever. Okay, I'm sure you guys yeah. won't make me do it if it's stupid. So, um, yeah. Uh, but so, yeah, I thought it was funny. So you have, wasn't with him. Exactly. So you have Ron's return to... Um, oh, and let's just reference this, too. Ron gets the fact that Harry and Ginny have a thing developing. He gets the fact that that relationship is progressing. I can't stand the he fix... He likes it. I, yeah, I can't stand the fix that, you know, have Ron, you know, at that point, throw Harry up against the wall and try and strangle the bejesus <laughs> out of him for daring to if touch his sister. If you hurt her, sister. I'll kill you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, you know, more correctly, if you hurt her, she'll kill you. But, you know, I like the fact that Ron's perspective on this, which, and let me even stop you here. I also don't like the fix Ron is like, oh, yeah, go sleep with my sister. You know, I can't buy into that either. There's two extremes. I like the moderate, I love the moderate Ron and if after the end that says, 
I get this is happening. I'm just going to pretend it's not, and I'll be in the other room, you know, with my fingers in my ears humming. <laughs> I just think that's the better, uh, you know, so of course he he bails out when Harry and Ginny are having their little quiet moment, and of course he charges back in, you know, much to, you know, Harry's embarrassment and Ginny's, you know, chagrin to say that we have a house. I think, I think he sees it very much in the same way that Harry saw him and Hermione. I think that Ron already sees Harry as family, and just another brother. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And well, that, that makes the whole Jenny thing he needs, Well, it makes it all the more comfortable. Like, obviously, he's going to be part of the family somehow, and that's just as good a way as any, you know? And that if if Harry, who thought of Hermione like a sister, could look the other way while they get it on, Ron can do the same thing. I think he's just trying to be as mature as Harry was about it. I think... I look at it a little bit differently. I think Ginny is Ron's youngest. I think Ginny is Ron's little sister, and she's always been six years old until the last year, and Ron is a realistic person, but still doesn't want to know about it. It's like the thing with Hermione. I'm just going to assume Ginny has no earthly idea what's going on, and I'm just going to assume she doesn't do the same things herself. It's almost like a non-aggression pact. I won't think of you doing it if you don't think of me doing it. Yes, that's probably... That's true. Well, they even say that. They say that in the fake. Yeah. Plus, I, I think, think it's just hysterical where he bursts into the house and, like, he's like, yeah, y'all are talking, but whatever it is, this is more important. We've got a new flat. Come look at it. <laughs> I think that Ron also recognizes on some level that if he pushed it with, you know, Harry and Ginny, the Ginny would beat the snot out of him. Yeah, I think he, he knows that Jenny. Well, he knows that Harry would never do something like that, personally. Yeah. And he also knows that Jenny can take care of her own. Yeah. So there's nothing to worry on both counts. But mostly it's because he he knows that Harry would never do anything like that. So moving right along, we go to Gringotts. And in one of the funnier scenes uh, in the fic, you have... And one thing I just want to point out about, you know, as this chapter progresses, you get to see every character with their picture of Leo. And I yes. love the fact that they call him Leo. I can't even remember how they get Leo, but the, the baby's name is His Percy. name is Le- Leander, isn't it, or something like that? Is it Percy Leander, and they call him Leo for short? It's Percival Leander Weasley. Right. And they got Leo from Leander, because Percy's too painful. Oh, we have to back up for a second. So, and one thing that, um, and, and I apologize, we're, you know, kind of bouncing around this chapter as well. So everybody hang on. Um, you know, right before... <laughs> You know, Ron, you know, takes out, you know, poor little Mr. Archibald. He's rereading Hermione's letter for the 50th time. And you picture, yeah. you know, this completely battered piece of parchment that, you know, he, you know, has the crease marks of it from when he's read it over and over. And I love, how, I love how Hermione, uh, writes to him saying, this is the first letter I've written to you in two years. And that really underscores it. He, and it really, you know, reinforces what Ron was saying in earlier chapters. He and Hermione have not been separated since the death right. of Dumbledore. They haven't been separated literally since the beginning of the sixth year. You know, they have they have been together every day for two years, almost. You know, yeah. obviously something happened right. with Ron's seventh year that we haven't gone into yet. And I like the fact that she can now talk to Ron comfortably. She's not trying to impress him with everything she says. She's just, you know, talking to him normally. And I thought it was so funny that she's like, you know what, you're going to laugh at whatever I say, so why don't I just say it? And he thinks it's cute. I just... These two characters have been through war and hell together, and they're just in the chat now. I just thought that was a really cool point to make. Mm -hmm. 
No, it's a good one. Did you have any comment on that, or you want to move further along? Um, I I don't have any comments because I completely agree with you. I'm sorry. It's okay. That's exactly what I thought. That's seriously exactly what I thought, and we, it's what I think. We apologize, everybody. If Renda were here now, she'd be gagging at the prospect of a Ron Hermione, you know, ship. So you know what? I know. Which I that's that's horrible. Well, I'm in the middle of reading one of her Ron Hermione fics, and her excuses—they're easy to write. My response is, I don't care. It's good. <laughs> you know, you can't make it. It amuses me, like that people don't like shit so much. I, I guess I'm just too open to all ships that. I ship these anti shippers crack me up. I ship George Mathemer's Murda, so I can pretty much deal with anything. <laughs> so do I. That's my new top ship. All right. Oh my God, there should be a cane involved in that one. All right, so we move on to Pinky. Exactly, we move on to Gringotts, and you have Bill trying to make it down the hallway, and he is intercepted by. All of these goblins who pull his pants down, and they're poking his freckles, and you can tell they have the lunar chart out trying to tell, you know, his constellation, how many stars are supposed to be in it, and there's a misprint of the Ministry Files, and they're trying to scrape his butt, and, you know, it's this <laughs> awful moment, and we learn something interesting, we learn that uh, Polyjuice Poaching cannot replicate birthmarks, and you can, you can tell this is a setup from Charlie... Check out your new diversion expert there. He does the same type of work that Fleur Delacour did. You can tell the minute that Bill figures out that it was all a setup. You know, he just thinks of Charlie. And it reminds me of Jerry Seinfeld. He's like, Newman! It's just like you can tell he's going to, you know, beat the hell out of Charlie when <laughs> he gets back to the flat. But I just thought it was just a hilarious scene. It's the slow-moving train wreck that we've been waiting for. Bill is really taking me off in this chapter. Why? Seriously. Okay. Because he's like... He goes and has that anti-love spell put on him, which is stupid, because obviously it wasn't the Vila thing. And then he sees her, and, and I know I'm skipping a minute, and he sees her, and then he's just like, oh, it's all a spell. Don't look at her. Don't talk to her like you care. Blah, blah. You know, he said about his death. And I'm just like, oh, you jerk. Well, it's the classic. Total, total jerk. It's a classic literary device, and you see it um, coming up at the few chapters with other characters that I won't spoil yet, but you see characters completely in love who think their feelings stem from something else, and they really don't. These are just characters that love each other. Bill loved... Let's talk about their meeting. Yeah, Bill... I was just going to say... sorry. No, Bill loved Fleur, I think, since the minute he met her, and it has nothing to do with the fact that she's a Vila. He is, as Renda would say, because she's not here, let me channel Renda for a moment, being a butthead. (laughs) And... I think that I think if you're aggravated by this, you're going to be kicking more people come the next few chapters. But yes. let's talk about their meeting. Do you have any comments on that? Uh, they're okay. I just want to say their look when they first notice each other, and it's not her laughing. You know, it's not her being amused by the goblins attacking him. It, she's completely shocked. They're both completely shocked. That they're seeing each other, and she's just going, you, you, oh my god, you, it's you, Bill Weasley, and, you know, and he is just like, uh, 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 and... You know what I was thinking reading that? Have you seen the new commercial for the navigation system? It's the guy driving in the car, and the navigation system just told him where to get great Chinese food and told him how to get around all the traffic, and he makes a reference to the fact that he's in love with the navigation system, and they put the really corny romantic music on. 
And you, you see him, it's yeah. like, turn around, and he's looking at it longingly. And all of a sudden, the navigation system breaks the ice by telling him to take, like, a third on Matthews or something like that. And he's like, you're right, you're right, let's just keep this professional. I just imagine that. I imagine the really corny music of Bill gawking at Fleur, gawking back at Bill, while the goblins are poking his bare butt, you know, trying to scrape off the freckles. I just suppose all I could picture in this chapter. Well, I just, I just loved that they were, they weren't so shocked to see each other. They were so shocked that the other was alive. And it just made you go, oh yeah, war again, forgot about the war. And, and you know, and he's going, oh my God, it's actually her. Charlie, you're going to die. Newman. <laughs> and, and he like runs away to his office or something, doesn't he? He like yeah, goes into his he, office. He has to go to his office to get, you know, his badge to prove he's really who he says he is. And Fleur follows. <laughs> and he tries to play it so. You know, so suave and sophisticated and usually when you know the characters like Bill try and play it suave and sophisticated that's usually when they slip on the banana peel and fall down the flight of stairs and you really how right. suave and sophisticated can you play it when everyone was just staring at your naked butt but I digress so you have well and it comes across as such a stiff jerk he does and you can see her heart break a little bit you didn't remember me oh yeah yeah I knew you were coming I knew you were coming yeah, yeah. of course he gives away too much and you know gives away Take the fact it. that he was thinking about her and within a few moments, you know, they're grasping hands and they're talking and they're, it's kind of the cliched, you know, you know, lifetime original movie dialogue, you know, why didn't you contact <laughs> me? You know, I thought you were dead. Why did you leave? You know, the the line you get in all these lifetime original movies, well, the dragon trainers came and I had to leave. So, you know. I'm just well, gonna- and then she's like, my sister is dead. And then she's like, what about your brother? And I'm like, doesn't she know his brother is dead? Wasn't she I thought that was funny, too. And he's like, still dead. Thank you for asking. Because it wasn't like, you know, he was missing and presumed killed. Like, I didn't they know he was pretty much dead by chapter two? She was standing there in tears after listening to their conversation in chapter two. And then here she is. She's like, yeah, your brother? Is he still dead? Yeah, okay. What an icebreaker. Oh, God. I know. And then he's like, yeah, here's a picture. Let me show you his son, and and let's make this really awkward and horrible. And I don't know. To me, whenever people see these baby pictures, they act so much better than people in life. Because people in real life are like, yeah, it's cute, and that's it. You know, but they're all like, oh, my gosh, congratulations. She kisses him on both cheeks. That is actually a good point. How many times do you see pictures of babies and you're like, oh, that's a cute baby. And this one, people see pictures of Leo when they start crying hysterically, which, you know, of course, maybe they get the fact that, you know, the dad's dead and, you know, it's a beautiful thing. War. Yeah, war. I don't know. War, what is it good for? So, you know, maybe that's a little, you know, Maybe that's that. it. But then we get into the heart of, you know, the, the Fleur-Bill dynamic, which you're going to see replicated in a few chapters with some other characters as well, is that what is causing the love? What is causing the desire? Is it that she is a Vila or is it that he genuinely cares for her? And you see the chapter end with these characters very angry with each other. And this is Bill's perspective. And Fleur becomes very cold. You know, her demeanor changes. She almost becomes less beautiful before his eyes. And she becomes more plain before his eyes, or at least that's what I took from it. And yeah, yeah. I'm well, wondering. She loses her sparkle. 
Now, do you think she was using her abilities on him and then stopped? Or do you think... Because you asked this before. You asked, can she turn it off? What Did she ever have it yeah. turned on? Maybe she had it... Maybe she was using, you know, like the Vila, you know, quote-unquote pheromones before and then stopped? Or... I got the sense that she dropped all pretense. She was just herself. She was pissed off. She wasn't going to waste her powers. If he thought that she was using her abilities, fine. She wasn't going to use any abilities. And let's see, you know, how he reacts then. If you don't want me, you're not going to get me. And well, no, that's not it. That's not what I got at all. What did you get? I got that, that yeah, she probably was using her, her uh, Vila stuff, but maybe they came out naturally when she was actually attracted to someone. Like maybe in that circumstance she didn't actually have full control over turning him off and maybe didn't even realize that she had him on. And then when he completely rejects her, she turns him off because she's just like I think she's so hurt and so ticked off. Yeah, and I got the sense Yeah, and I got the sense too that, you know, that wasn't her natural state, you know, this the, the icy sneer. That was just her really pissed and also, you know, forcibly not using any of her abilities. Yes. Yep, I agree with you. And then the chapter, you know, will end with let me just find the words here. She slam he she slams the door. And what's her last and, line in the uh, chapter? I should have known. So of In course, fact. so of course, now you have her holding out hope that Bill was special, and now Bill is just like all the other guys, angst. Nothing again. special. <laughs> angst has been going on. It's sad at this point. And now we move on to our final chapter, which is chapter twenty-one. You're gonna hear, you're gonna hear a lot of sobbing in this chapter. Your nerve. That's just Jen, so just try and get used to that. Now you have, you know, Harry waking up, and you have uh, the alarm clock going off. Ron wakes up at the same time saying, you really should get a new alarm clock if you're not working for Oliver Wood anymore. And Ron's going off with Sirius to the ministry, and Harry's going off for his first day dragon riding. And there's a great mm-hmm. moment here with Sirius. And... We were talking, you know, earlier about how mm-hmm. Sirius doesn't really overreact to the fact that Harry is going to be a dragon rider. And mm-hmm. there's a very quiet scene where he comes into the room. Sirius and, and Harry have had a very strange relationship since this fic began. And it's not what you would expect, you know, coming off the heels of, you know, the prologue in Chapter 1, Chapter 2, Chapter 3, where Sirius is just... He can't wait for Harry to get there. And then the minute Harry gets there, you know, everything goes to hell. And, you know, they they, they, they fight. And, you know, Sirius is on his, you know, walking on eggshells around Harry. And they have a very strange conversation. You know, Harry is told, you know, don't do anything no one else would do. You know, take care of yourself. Don't let them talk you into anything. And Harry's getting very frustrated with Sirius already. Because Harry does not like being treated like a child. And, you know, there's Harry hears something from the hallway, so he pushes Sirius aside, goes outside, and he knows that Ginny's having a nightmare, and there's nobody else there. And he dismisses Sirius, and there's a great moment where he walks into the bedroom with Ginny, and he shuts the door, and you have, like, the very surprised Sirius in the hallway, you know, as the door closes. And you have Ginny in bed, and she's having a nightmare about well, Tom Riddle. I do, I do, I do want to say that I really like where uh, Sirius uh, goes, is that Jenny? And he moves to past Harry. You know, 
and and actually be the guardian. And I think it's funny that him, even with Patrick's hearing, doesn't know that Jenny has nightmares. Like, this is the first he's seen of it or heard of it, and Harry's just like, no worries, I'll take care of it. Well, I think maybe I'm going to take care of it. I think maybe he has to be Padfoot to have that Maybe ability. so. Maybe you're right. Although, it's interesting, too, we really haven't seen any of the Jenny serious dynamic since. Right. Well, serious hasn't work. had dynamic with anyone really except Ron. True. I mean, they, they, there's it's implied that he had a conversation with Ginny, but we don't get to hear that conversation. So you have, right. you know, a situation where now, um, you know, Harry is in the bedroom and Ginny's having the nightmare. He's nervous. He doesn't know what to do. He walks over and he does what he saw Hermione do. He calms her down, you know, and he strokes her hair and she's, you know, completely, you know, she's, you know, all sweaty and she's, you know, having a very terrible nightmare. And what does she do? She calms down and she snuggles up against him. Yeah. I love it. Did you really? I didn't think you would like that. You like that? I didn't think that I would like that. I was being sarcastic. Oh, I was like, I live for this sentence. I love it. She rolled entirely onto her side, burying her face against the outside of Harry's thigh and throwing her arm across his leg. Like, I realized that she's asleep and stuff. I just love that. It's so comfortable. It's so, it's so innocent romance. And like, you can just tell that she trusts him completely, even in her sleep, you know. And then he kisses her. It's just the most natural thing for him to do. He kisses her. And then she wakes up, but then she goes back to sleep. <laughs> I love the part where he pulls himself away from her because he knows he has to go to work, and she rolls away and she pouts. Yes, I love she's like, that. She's like, eh. And then she just rolls over and goes back to bed. Well, I thought this chapter proved beyond anything else that Ginny is a, is, you know, a, is a blanket hog, and you know, a, and she uses more than her allotted space in the bed, but... <laughs> I liked it. I love it. And then, you know, he apparates and he sees Charlie. Now, this was a very interesting scene because, actually, I'm trying very hard not to spoil stuff that comes ahead. And I accidentally uh, left part of Xenia's voicemail to us in last episode where she talks about uh, Cho Chang. So, you know, sorry. Sorry. Sorry about that. And I love the fact that Cho Chang has spiked hair. I love the fact that, like I they said, you. they wanted, they were envisioning a Tonks-like character when they wrote Cho, and I love the fact that they even got the hair right. She has the spiky Cho hair, she has the spiky Tonks hair. I thought that was a just really uh, interesting reference. Of course, Cho is Charlie's assistant and Charlie's love interest, which is either is even more pronounced given the number of Charlie Tonks fix that you have out there. I really liked that they had her with short, spiky hair because it just gives her a tough spunk. I think that's needed for a girl that works with dragons. Like, she's a girl in a man's job. And I just love that they make her real spunky. But not as clumsy or, you know, she's not as awkward as Tonks. Yeah. That's true. Well, that's true, too. That's a very good point. You you really wouldn't want Tonks on the dragon, I think, is what you're trying to get at here. Can you imagine Tonks on a dragon? Oh, my God. Seriously. It would be horrendous. It's like Get Smart. It's like Don Adams, you know, driving him. Oh, God. Moving on. All right. So now we have the big reveal in this chapter is we have Harry, you know, learning. He meets, you know, Victor Crumb. And there's a great moment where Victor is, you know, 
showing off pictures of his baby and you know it's, it's kind of like the yeah. leo thing so you, you can tell harry's like oh you want to see a picture of a baby and it's like you know the proud fatherly <laughs> moment i really like victor crumb in the fix so far i just think he's just a really well can... we like him because he's not trying he's not after one of our girls like there's no crazy love triangle That's he's true got a too. wife that's true too. Victor is a is a really, I'm gonna say hard character to write because there's not much depth to him. But I think the fact that they give him a wife and they give him a baby, and they give him a Muggle-born wife and they give him a baby and they make him a dragon rider when he doesn't have to be, I just think that unconsciously adds some depth to the character that you have in advance of him even opening his mouth. So I thought that I, I appreciated that. I, I, I did like that. And you get to meet some of the other dragon riders. And these are the hardcore guys who've done this during the war. There are some new people who are being recruited in. And you get the sense from Harry that maybe this isn't going to be as bad as he thought it would be. There's people here he likes, he enjoys and maybe he can survive this. And there's just a lot of little details and characteristics built into this chapter. You know, when they pass around all of the equipment, some people don't even glance at it because they've been doing this a thousand times before. Yeah. You, know, you get the sense that there's the newbies and there's the veterans here. And then Draco shows up. And he's a yeah. snot. And he brought his own dragon. And he's, you know... Yeah, what is with that? Oh, it's gracious. I'm Draco. Not, oh, it's like watching him on a school broom. He's bringing his own dragon, and Secretary Privy Rose Cape Brown is very you know, lenient to him and very um, submissive to him because you can tell he's probably financing you know, a large part of the operation. And why is he here? He's here just to needle Harry, and he didn't need to do this, and he's a coward. So why is he here without a bodyguard riding a dragon? And the answer to that, of course, is that there's a lot more of the Draco than we see. The sneer is an act. He's a very broken character, just like everybody else here. We don't see the ways he's broken yet. But, you know, there's just a tremendous amount to his character. And yeah. it's almost like, you know, it's an extension of Draco Malfoy is the next-door neighbor. Now Draco Malfoy is the fellow dragon rider. It's like you have to find ways to incorporate Draco Malfoy into the story. In but, way. you know, I felt very suspicious about this. I remember reading it and going, there's no way that Draco is here to help people. What is his scheme? You know, what's, what's happening here? Because this is not Draco. Well, I think that's the right question to ask, and I think we don't know yet, but I think it's a hallmark of their writing that we know something's yeah. not right here. And we know this isn't just plot positioning to get, you know, the, the most drama from the story. This is actually, you know, a very good question that we need to be asking ourselves. Mm-hmm. They get partners. And Harry, of course, is partnered with Draco Malfoy. Of course, of course. <sighs> Which is just, it's just another kick to Harry. I mean, here he is doing this noble thing he had to give up Quidditch, and now he has to deal with his worst enemy ever. You know, other than Voldemort and Bellatrix and Lucius and that bunch. Like, this is down-the-road enemy, but... And I have to say, I yeah, really... Yeah, like seventh worst enemy. Yeah, I, the only one who's still alive. I have to say, I really did buy into this a little bit. Of course, there's a little bit of, you know, the footprint of the plot on it, but I did like the fact that they're moving the story into the next act. You know, Harry yeah. is a dragon rider, 
And of course, is there conflict there? Yes, Draco Malfoy's yes. on his team, but Victor Crumb is there too. And, and we like Victor. And we like Victor, and we like Cho, and we like Charlie, and you know the secretary's there, and the plot is there, mm-hmm. and secretary privy Rose K. Brown, and you can tell a lot of stuff is going to happen, and there's a mystery. Why is Draco here? And I like where the storyline is. I, I think it's going to be. What do you think? What do you think of Malfoy's dragon's name? What was it? Mordor. <laughs> you know what? I've I'm not a big Lord of the Rings fan. Even that one hit me over the head like a rolled up Volkswagen. <laughs> I thought it was great. It was not. You know, it didn't Lord of the Rings anything. It just I thought it was great. Mordor. <laughs> I do want to say that I was I was interested to know that they actually talk about bathroom charms and things that I would be I would be going well how do they go to the bathroom or <laughs> and they actually answer it in this fake you're like oh yeah oh and the wind charms they need the wind charms too because the dragons will you know shoot fire yeah, at you burned oh we get burned they have. We didn't mention what? it. We didn't mention it. Harry gets Norbert. I think that's a really cool connection to Hagrid. You can tell Harry misses Hagrid quite a bit. And if he's going to be yeah. riding on, you know, a creature with the ability to incinerate him at any moment, it might as well be something that Hagrid brought into the world in some manner. So I think that's a cool connection to his past. I think that's a great way to incorporate more of the canon into the storyline. I thought that was that was awesome that Norbert's well, going to be I just dragon. love that they make Norbert be very uh, gentle, like he's like the only kind, the only dragon of his kind that has been like this uh, good with the other dragons. Like, that, didn't it say that most of Norbert's kind of the Norwegian Ridgebacks or whatever they're called, don't they mm-hmm. um, kill, they eat the other dragons? They do, but they've had had him since he but was a baby. Norbert. Charlie's been raising him since Harry's first year, so Char- so Norbert is coming up on. He's so house trained. He's seven years old. He's a second grader. And I think it was because Hagrid was his mummy. And he burned Hagrid's beard off, and now Harry gets to ride him. <laughs> I just love the reference to the dragons. They're completely it. sedated here, and if they love you, they will burn your face off. But that's a sign of affection. Hagrid's, I know. Do you ever think if Hagrid lived, that. Hagrid would be a dragon rider right alongside Harry? No, because I don't think Hagrid could ever give himself to one animal. I think he loved them all so much. No, I think that if the school were closed and they needed dragon riders, if the dragon could uh, tolerate Hagrid's uh, tremendous girth there, I think that you would definitely see Hagrid on a dragon. I think you would see Hagrid or, working with Charlie. Yeah, maybe as the caretaker top. Maybe. I don't necessarily see him as the guy with a sword type thing, you know? That's true, too. Well, I can't see him working <laughs> at the ministry either as, you know, oh, assistant no. district oh, attorney. No. Could you imagine Hagrid with as the Rose- prosecutor? <laughs> the secretary, Privy for Escape Brown and Hagrid. Oh, God. <laughs> One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> exactly. Okay, but what happens next? We go to the ministry. We're back from okay. Ron's perspective, and I think we owe uh, Sirius Black apologies. Last week, we commented on his lack of qualifications as the Attorney General of the <laughs> Wizarding World. And I'm reading this, and I'm shaking my head, and all I could think was, crap, 
he has a background in law. Well, but you know, we didn't know at that point. And that's We've read this before, life. we should have known. Well, I'll put it to you this way. He doesn't really have a background in law so much as he always thought he a should hobby. be a lawyer. It was a hobby, and now he is, you know, the Attorney General of the Wizarding World, so maybe we weren't that far off. Although I do no, like... I don't think we were. Okay. Okay, we just saved our own egos there. I do like the way that they uh, add some characterization to that. The fact that both Ron and Sirius read the Hogwarts manual, the Hogwarts rule book, and they know the little quirks about the uh, Hogwarts rule system. It's just basically the way they describe it. If Sirius is going to be a troublemaker, he needs to, he needs to know everything he's allowed to get away with by the rules. And Ron chimes yeah. in, you're allowed in the kitchens. You can't take food out of the kitchens, but there's nothing that says you can't go in there and have someone else carry it out. They're both legalists. And I'm kind of so, like that, too. I think of things from a legal standpoint. They're both legally focused people. And I do like the fact that even if you know, Sirius isn't a trained lawyer, he is someone who has always been pulled in this direction, and maybe if he wasn't in Azkaban, you would have seen him as a trained lawyer. So I like the fact that they mm-hmm. gave him that, that background. What were you saying? No, I do. I just can't see that Ron read that handbook. I can see Hermione forcing it down his throat, and then him, like, this is the payoff he gets for Hermione's work. You don't like, think he of knows him. the roles now. <laughs> I don't know. We, I don't know. We've talked about Ron as the master strategist, as the tactician, and I think we've agreed it's something that you don't see a lot about in the canon. Uh, Joe kind of t- Joe kind of tells us, but doesn't show us. Aside from you know the first book, he isn't. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that in Deathly Hallows. I could see Ron as someone you know who's. You know, if you're going to do well in chess, you need to know all the rules. You need to know everything you can get away with. I don't have a problem expanding that into after the end in terms of his uh, potential to have a legal background. And you know what? We're only getting half of the canon here. The canon stops after Goblet of the Fire and they take over. So <laughs> maybe Ron took pre law at Hogwarts. We have no idea. <laughs> I like that. I like it that he read it. I do think it's a very nice Ron background there. I think it's it's this kind of thing that makes H, after the end Ron so endearing. I was a little to canon. Absolutely. I love the part where Ron opens Sirius's door in Sirius's office. And you have to love Sirius too. He doesn't have an ego at all. He's like, this is one of my many offices. And I'm like, who are you? The vice president? You get like an office in every building you go. <laughs> but, you know, they, he opens the door and there's an eagle on the other side. And the eagle, yeah. I, I believe, is carrying uh, his file on the Malfoy case. Is that correct? <laughs> I think it had it in his mouth, yeah. All I could picture, you know, sometimes, you know, I forget that we're in the wizarding world. And I and maybe I just think of things uh, too plainly, you know, in terms of, you know, just the muggle world that I live in. If I opened the door and there was an eagle on the other side, I would wet myself. That would scare the hell out of me. You know what? I can picture a cute little pig-style owl. It's kind of like a little butterfly. If I opened the door and a freaking eagle flew in, I would have to change my pants. I don't think people realize how big eagles actually are. Uh, I don't think a lot of people have seen them, but in actuality, they are pretty enormous birds. Their wingspan is like 7 to 12 feet, right? Like, they're just flying around the ministry with files. Like, that concerns me a little bit. How big are these doors? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, could you imagine if you open the door and, like, Jurassic Park is on the other side? Like, that's a little frightening. 
Fargo's on this. <laughs> oh, good gracious. Yeah, I thought an eagle was was a bit much. Uh, a little bit much. <laughs> Norbert's on the other side with the Malfoy file. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. So I, I liked it, though. I did, too. So we moved- Did they tell why it's an eagle? No, it's just a random eagle flying around the office. Uh- it kind of scared me a little bit. I'm like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> Leave him alone. And Ron's no, like, okay. hey, look, it's the Malfoy file. <laughs> so, um... Yeah, not, oh my god, there's a freaking deal. Okay, moving on. So we get the sense, too, from going into this chapter that it's very, very difficult to convict someone of something. And we go to the courtroom, and uh, one of the comments I made last week is apparently stupid. Sirius is both the prosecutor and the defense counsel, which is an interesting way to do it. I completely think he should act as Fred Flintstone and run back and forth and play both parts. And you bring in a former prosecutor, and this is someone who worked in the legal office, who was assigned cases and represented uh, Death Eaters, who uh, got off, correct? They were not convicted? They were... I think that's right, yeah. They were acquitted. And it is... um, Prosecutor uh, Courtney. Darla Courtney. Is on trial here. She is brought in. She was previously stunned and she appears to be in good condition. As we said before, you know, they stun Mad Eye Moody every day and he turned out to be perfectly fine. So apparently uh, Darla is doing pretty good. And I just like that it reinforces the fact that everyone thinks she's guilty and Sirius is taking every case where it appears the person is guilty. Because if he can take the most serious of the most serious of the most serious cases and he can still believe in his heart that these people are guilty as they go away he can live with that because this is personal mission no one else will go through what he did he was the most guilty person you know going into you know the ministry he never even got a fake trial he was just locked up for years this is his call to arms this is his way of healing himself because you know Remus is trying to find ways to heal himself. Ginny is trying to find ways to help people. You know, Sirius doesn't know how to deal with Harry. Harry's going off to fight dragons. Ron is, you know, discovering, you know, law and working in a bar and missing Hermione. And Hermione's off becoming a thinker. All these characters, you know, Molly's taking care of Penny. Penny has the baby. You know, Bill has, you know, his bare butt, apparently, and, you know, his ability to really, you know, get on well with women. You know, all these characters have their own little thing. Sirius's thing is, no guilty man will go to jail on my watch. And I think that's a real interesting way of writing the character. And she even taunts him with this. You know, you're supposed to be defending me. Well, she's mad. I would she be pissed, mad. too. I'd be pissed, too. But we don't know if she is innocent or guilty at this point. They're assuming she's guilty, and she is saying, I'm not guilty, and she is mad. She's, like, spitting her words out. She, in her heart, believes that she's innocent, and she thinks that this whole thing is ridiculous and that, that Sirius's questions are leading to her being guilty. Like, he's not even trying to prove that this girl is innocent. He believes she's guilty. Yeah, she throws his, uh, shall we call it, problems with the law in his face, and Sirius has a very uh, blank expression on his face. Ron questions whether or not this is something that Sirius gets all the time. You know, the fact that 
you know, it must be. You know, he did nothing wrong, but everyone always just assumes, you know, maybe there was a backroom deal or something happened there. He's never fully trusted. And you have this woman who believes herself to be innocent on the stand, and Sirius does not believe that she is completely innocent. And you see, you know, them trading the same barbs at each other, and Sirius, you know, holds his tongue on that one and continues doing his job. And they bring in, I believe it must be Pansy Parkinson's father or, you know, an older relative of Pansy yeah. Parkinson, who is one of the guys that she got off. This is one of the guys that I was acquitted. I think it's, it must be really strange for these guilty people that have been uh, stunned, mm-hmm. you know, that they suddenly just wake him up in the courtroom and then put him on trial. Like, yeah. he doesn't know where he is complete confusion. I just thought that was so a little strange that they didn't even pre-wake him up before the trial. Well, it's, I mean, an interesting pro- on- it's an interesting process all around, because if you stop to really think about it, you know, you have the prosecutor acting as defense attorney also. Mm-hmm. You know, they're supposed to be, you know, representing the person, but also prosecuting them, which I think is a huge conflict of interest. You know, it's, it's an interesting yeah. uh, legal system they have there, and this is a system that Ron is presumably going to go through in a few chapters. And I'd like to cut back. We go back to the Lupin Lodge, uh, where we spend yep. the rest of the Jenny? chapter. We're not there yet. Calm down. Well, I no, Jenny. We're back to Lupin Lodge. We are, and Jenny's reading her book. She's doing her little Hermione <laughs> thing. And you have Sirius, you know, just completely, you know, focused on his work. And you have Ron at the table. And all of a sudden, you know, Ron has, you know, an epiphany. And he's wondering maybe Darla is innocent and maybe the person who was feeding Darla cases uh, was the person they need to be looking at. Maybe it was her superior. Yeah. Who, who he looks outside of the box. Ron is a tactician. Ron does think outside the box. So you yeah. have Sirius wanting to charge off to the ministry and, you know, Remus, you know, is just getting so frustrated with him. He's never home. And when he's home, he's charging off back to work. So someone brings up the point, why doesn't Ron go with you? And this is kind of the focus that Ron is able to pick up as his character arc progresses. Ron gets to be Sirius's apprentice. Ron gets to go deeper into the legal system. That can be a place where let Ron be Ron. Ron can be the tactician. Ron can be the strategist. Let Ron be a lawyer, because everyone else apparently can be. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and Sirius can evidently take on Apprentice with his... <laughs> Not only is Sirius the Attorney General, he's now training, you know, the Deputy <laughs> Attorney General. So I just thought that was a really can great... You, can you imagine the, the Sheriff and Deputy of Sirius and Ron? <laughs> I could. I think they're like the same guy. You know, someone mouths off to one of them and they both beat the crap out of the person. <laughs> It's two alpha males trying to make it in the world. So they like go blazing saddles or something. That's so, hysterical. So they go back to the office and you yeah. hear, you know, a noise upstairs. Harry has apparated home and you know, you hear him sitting on the bed and Sirius goes to go upstairs and Remus stops him and Ginny's thankful and Ginny charges up the stairs to check on Harry. And you have to really feel for Sirius. Every time something happens in this house and he tries to go get involved, someone grabs him and says, get the hell away, I'm doing it. Like, it's like no one, everyone tells Sirius, you're never home, you're never home, you're ignoring all of us. And then when he's like, oh, I'm going to go help that guy. They're like, stop! We want to do it. <laughs> it's like, go back to work. And he's like, every time I go to work, he yell at me. It's like, you have to feel bad for Sirius in this chapter. I know. <laughs> We're serious. Oh, poor guy. I'm so sorry. I'm glad you pointed that out. 
you have to feel bad for the guy, but unfortunately Sirius died in the canon, and we feel so terrible about that, because I love him so much. You know what's really interesting, I'm, too? In these chapters, what? you know, as I visualize this, when I picture Sirius, he's still wearing what he was wearing in the movie Prisoner of Azkaban. <laughs> unfortunately, I still have him. I still have him in his Azkaban garb, unfortunately, so it, it just looks so funny. It's like, it even makes you feel worse for him in my head. Oh, that is very sad. So Sirius... I don't know. Why don't... Like, I don't know if I picture him in clothes. Like, I don't what? think I've pictured... Well, I mean, I don't picture him naked, <laughs> but I don't picture his... <laughs> it's Jen is reading this all of them and are naked. It makes everything make so much more sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you know what I mean? Like, I haven't pictured him... I don't picture him in Azkaban garb, but I don't picture him in pure blood posh either. What you know, and wearing? I don't picture him... I don't know. Like we 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 know exactly what some of the other characters are wearing, but you know what? Maybe Remus loaned him some, you know, torn clothes or something. And... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just haven't ever thought about what Sirius is wearing because I know that I've seen pictures from Order of the Phoenix, and I know that I don't picture Sirius in that outfit. So I don't know how I picture him. I would like to know what he's wearing. Xenia, what's Sirius wearing? Okay. I love that she listens to the show. It makes me so happy. Okay. <laughs> I do too. So, brace yourself. You're about to get verklempt. We get to the top of the stairs, and Jenny knocks on Harry's door, and he says, come in, and he's studying the map of Azkaban, you know, in the placement of the Dementors. What a where- cool map. I was trying to visualize it. It must be a, it's a 3D map, so it must like fit in his lap, and everything comes up of it, and you can see the Dementors, you know, kind of pulling themselves out of the, the castle. Yeah, I imagined, see. I imagined it like the game of life, sort of. Yes, that's exactly what I was because I was trying to get it in the beginning, and it was kind of not jumping out at me. But I think that's great. I think it is like the game of life. So you know. I love the part too. Harry kind of pats the bed next to him, and Ginny comes up and he puts his arm around her, and she leans her head on him. And Gemma, you'd like to take it from there. She's looking at the map. You know, she's got her head on his shoulder, and she's looking at the map. And he's asking how school, and she's going, "How is Azkaban? And how are the dragons?" And and she just loves that. She goes, uh, "You have Hagrid, Norbert. You know, it kind of makes it better." And she's somewhat getting happier for him and then their 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 hands clasp and then you know he rubs her arm you know they're starting they're doing those initial steps that every first relationship does and goes through and she's telling him who are who the, who he's working with and she's like Victor Crumb really and then there's Draco and she's like what what which I would be too and and so you know <laughs> She leans her head on his shoulder again, and she hates, she despises Malfoy, and, and she wants it to be good, and, and Harry is doing these slow motions on her arm, and, and she's just so thrilled because Harry's touching her, you know? And Jen and first, is so thrilled because Harry's touching her. Oh, here I am going, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, and um, then she asks him the big question. Harry, were you in my room this morning? Busted! And... I know, and he's like, uh, uh, like he's been rubbing her hair, and like he just stops moving. And uh, she's like, "Was I dreaming?" And he was like, "Yes, I helped." She goes, "Thank you for helping." And he kisses her, 
Oh, he kisses her so gently, and I think it says the contact with his lips was so gentle that it almost hurt. And I was just like, for the first time, like, he's genuinely kissing her. And then it ends. And she's just so tired. Like, this is what I was like, what? And then she's like, I'm tired. And he's like, okay. And then they just kind of flop over on the bed. And she, he goes, we can't stay here. And he goes, you know, just for a minute. And then they both fall asleep. And she wakes up the next morning in her own room. And she's alone. And he's gone. And all she can do is cry. Because it's worse having somebody and then not having them when you wake up than it is to not have them at all. And Harry obviously carried her back and tucked her in bed. I don't know if it's the next morning. It's definitely hours later. And she's in her own bed, and there's the wall between them. And she's just crying because she's so happy, but she feels so alone because, like you said, she's had it, and now she hasn't. I did think that the fact that she got tired was a little bit of foreshadowing. Maybe. Maybe Which we'll just leave right there and let people read on if they haven't gotten there yet. But I thought that was just a great moment. I just... I read it a little bit less for the fluff and a little bit more just for the uh, literary devices in the ways that... Because everyone writes the Harry Ginny scenes, but how do you differentiate them? I like the little moment where they just, you know, they just lay down together and, you know, Ron will be back soon. We have time. It's very simple language. We have time and they fall asleep. I love the fact that he carries her back and puts her in bed. Well, I like that it's so happy. You're so happy. We're all thrilled. And then it ends on a really sad note. I didn't take it as a sad note. I took it as a hopeful, bittersweet note. I think it's a really good problem to have. That the biggest problem you have as Jenny is that you have Harry. He obviously cares very deeply for you, and you don't have him that exact moment. I think that's a great problem to have. But I do think it's definitely, you know, the fact that she starts sobbing because of just the the fullness of emotion in that moment, I think is a, just a really powerful way to end the chapter. Just as a missing moment, could you picture Harry walking down the hallway carrying an unconscious Jenny into her bedroom and, like, Remus walking by and just this awkward moment, like, Harry? Remus, and they just pass each other. <laughs> like, I just, I could really pitch it. I thought that would have been funny if that. I don't understand why he didn't just keep her in bed with him. Why play the noble card? Is it because Ron would have come in and been like, hey, what's going on? Because I don't think he actually would have. I think it was both. I think he wanted to put her in her own bed because that's where she belongs for now. I think, yeah, I think, you know, Ron would have probably had a couple of choice words to say about that. And I think that. Oh, I don't think so. I think, well. Eh. I think I think, think after the end, Ron would have just walked away and been like, maybe smirked a little, but he wouldn't have said anything. Well, that's true, too. I, but I don't think Harry gets that. I think Harry is still the honorable guy who wouldn't want to even be, you know, seen as... This is the Harry who peeked in the room, and when Hermione looked up, he apparated to, you know, Quidditch tryouts. I mean... This is Harry we're dealing with. We're not dealing with, you know, a suave, sophisticated guy. We're dealing with Harry. I think that's just Harry's character. Harry's the good guy that will put you to bed and not take advantage of the situation. I just, I just well, got this. No, I think that's great. Well, I, I think this is a wonderful place to stop because that we're stopping here because it feels like a new starty, a new story is starting. Everything's a little bit, just a little bit different, but enough different where things are just now getting really interesting. We're going into the, you know, the second and final act of After the End, you know, you have you know, 
the dragons and Azkaban and something not quite right there. You have the revelation about Ginny. What does that mean? You know, Hermione, we don't really hear a lot from her, you know, in the last two chapters, but we do, yep. you know, we do know that. She well, we has, know she's away. We know she's away. And we know she has a journey that she needs to make. And it's a personal journey. It has nothing to do with books or her ability to memorize. Right. And you get the sense that all these characters are now at the precipice and where are they going to end up? It's just, I love this fix so much. And the best is yet yes. to come. So we're going to end our podcast here. We thank you all for joining us during this conversation. We're sorry uh, Rena had to cut out during the last half, but she will be back next week where we will be discussing uh, chapters 22 through 25 of uh, After the End, which will get us uh, closer to the end. If you have any questions for Arabella <laughs> and Xenia about uh, these chapters or chapters we're discussing next week, you can send us in voicemails uh, using a program called the Gizmo Project, which is a very easy download. Uh, it'll take you a couple minutes to get that on your computer. If you have a microphone, you're all ready, good to go. Uh, visit polarficweekly.com, click on Contact Us, and there's a link right to uh, that program, so you can send us in voicemails and participate in the show that way. Uh, we encourage yes. you to visit com or just visit our website and click on Forum. We have a great community building up there. Jen, I believe you had uh, something to say about that? Yes, if you are listening to this podcast and you have been a lurker, come to the forums and introduce yourself. We have a, a, a growing family there. And everyone is very nice, supportive, and we're always throwing out new ideas and getting to know each other a little bit, bit better. And we would love to get to know you as well. So come on down. We are also looking, always looking for new story recommendations. You know, if, so if you're an author or a reader or are just looking, you know, you have a pick that you'd like to wreck or are you looking for something new, we are the people to come talk to. I'm not sure why we're the people to come talk to, but we're willing to speak to you. Let's put it to you that way. We're the people to talk to you because we're the ones doing the cool fan fiction podcast. This is true. This is this is true too. If we have to spend eight hours editing every single episode, you know, you will speak to us. Just kidding. Uh, come join us on the forum. And obviously, uh, we're going to end this fic come uh, yes. you know, April, and there's another fic we would like to fit in before Deathly Hallows is released. I know what fic I'd like to cover, but maybe you have some suggestions. And we have plenty of fics for you know discussing now amongst ourselves, trying to figure out what to discuss next. But if you have any ideas, uh, recommend them to us. Uh, we will see you all uh, in Episode 7. Have a good night, everybody. Hello everyone at Potterfic Weekly. This is Shenya. I just finished listening to episode number five and thought I would call in with a few more comments. I don't really know where to start though. You guys were cracking me up at the end of the last episode because I'm off for a few days for spring break and he started talking about filing tax forms or how fan fiction writers are people who file tax forms and I was actually... Um, just getting ready to get on the phone to call the IRS and figure out why I hadn't received my refund yet. So, yeah, I do have some taxes out there. So I am a real person. Uh, so, hi. Um, first, let's see. I'm looking at all my notes, which I actually did not take in the car this week. And where to begin? I, let me just, first of all, Ryan, my name. Genya. Genya. I don't know, I can't think of a, like, a clever sort of, you know, 
harmony type Victor Crumb way to explain how to pronounce it. The S is like the S in pleasure. Or if you speak French, it's like a J at the beginning of a word. So probably it's easier if you can't say genya to say genya. Just think of it like gen. Yeah. So that is how you pronounce genya. Um, I don't know. Some people got it. Some people don't. That's all I can say. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. So God, talk about memories. Starting with the bar brawl scene in, I don't even know what chapter it was. It was the first chapter you started talking about. And uh, we put a lot of our friends and cameos in this scene. Uh, Captain Kathy, who's Eleanor Gamgee on The Sugar Quill, is in there. She's the blonde sitting next to Jimmy McMillan, who is actually a cameo for her actual husband. Um, And my soon-to-be ex-husband is there doing some experimental music with his wand. Um, And I don't think he ever knew or cared that he got a cameo in After the End, but I guess that's his loss. So, Um, yeah, so there were some cameos in there. There probably were some others that I don't even know who they were. But, you know, it. I don't think there's probably a single character in After the End who's mentioned by name who doesn't have some sort of some sort of a twin in the real world somehow. Uh, and you guys were cracking me up about Sirius, you know, Sirius being like the Renaissance man who does everything and Sirius the lawyer. And, uh, you know, yeah, what can I say? I, I don't have a deep explanation for that. We needed him to be a lawyer. And, you know, isn't it normal for prisoners to study law, like in the Azkaban library? I mean, you know, you got to figure he was reading up on that stuff, borrowing law books from people and things like that. So, um, yeah, I don't know. That's just, you know, just got to suspend some disbelief here and there. Um, let's see. What other notes do I have? A quick note about Penelope. Um, I think, I think you guys need to go back and reread some canon. Penelope's got curly hair. Chamber of Secrets. She has long curly hair. It's definitely described as curly in the books. That's like one of the only facts that we have about her. So we didn't make up her curly hair. Um, And the other things that we know about her is, uh, well, she was petrified, um, but she also placed a bet with Percy. Uh, I think, I don't know if it was in Goblet of Fire or not. No, must not have been. Must have been Prisoner of Azkaban. She places a bet with Percy about who's going to win the Gryffindor-Ravenclaw match. So, yeah. So we know a little bit more about her, but um, I guess we we made up the rest of her. That's true. Uh, You know, and uh, I'm glad you liked... Well, I'm glad you liked the Molly stuff. Or I don't know if liked... I mean, I guess you liked it. Um, You talked about it. And uh, Molly, I don't know. I mean, I have to say you were talking about Molly as sort of like the every mom. And I think there's definitely elements of my mom in our portrayal of Molly. And I think there's definitely elements of Arabella's mom in Molly. I mean, my mom is not nearly as as forceful as Molly Weasley. I mean, then again, I guess I never got on the front page of the paper, like nearly beaten someone to death in a bar fight. So I don't know if she would have, you know, come over and freaked out at me. Um, if that had happened, but, um, you know, I can certainly say that we definitely drew on our own mothers 
to portray Molly. And I think Molly Weasley is just really misunderstood. I mean, I think she's a very strong woman. She's, I mean, she's a member of the Order of the Phoenix, which we didn't know when we wrote this story. Uh, but, you know, I mean, she's raised seven kids and, you know, she's tough and, you know, she just really cares about her kids. And I think sometimes, you know, she knows she's saying things that annoy them. Uh, and she like almost just can't help herself. It's just like, she's just sort of, you know, it's sort of like, in her nature to correct these kids. Cause that's how she's been raising them. Uh, and you know, now that they're older, she has a hard time stepping back from it. And I guess I remember if I remember correctly, you'll have more insights into Molly in the upcoming chapters. And, um, I'm really glad that you guys seem to take so well to George and Roz Murda. I think it was either honey church or Lolly Brock, uh, two of our friends who came up with that idea. I think um, someone put the idea of George and Rosmerta into our heads and we just sort of went with it because we were like, sure, whatever, um, you know. And uh, so I'm glad that people were receptive to that. I thought it was just kind of a fun thing. I mean, you know, it's funny, like I remember when after the end, when we first posted that chapter and like people, like one or two people caught it, I think. And then like other people were just sort of like shocked that, and they were like, no, no, that's not what's happening. How do you know? And we're like, it's subtext. It's just, you know, they're in the scenes, take it for what, behind the scenes, take it for what you want. Uh, what else about that chapter? I don't know. Oh, the squirm. Well, it's just part of our cameo type thing. You know, we wanted to throw the sugar quill in there somewhere. And, uh, you know, we do this cutesy thing at the sugar quill where everything starts with SQ. So um, there actually is a candy called squirm. I think it's, I don't know if it's S-Q-W-O-R-M or S-Q-O-R-M. I don't know. I could look it up, but it's however we spelled it in the story, I think. And they're like gummy worms or something like that. So, um, we just sort of stole that name from that gummy worm candy and went with it. So I think that's all I really have to say. I mean, I can tell you, I think all, all the, all the good romance parts are Arabella's doing. Definitely. She's the queen of suspense. And, you know, I'm pretty sure there's an outtake somewhere, not an outtake. There's an alternate version of that last chapter with the wedding somewhere on my computer, because at one point, Harry and Jenny shared their first kiss at the wedding, um, like in Hogwarts. Uh, but then we decided, nah, let's make people wait a little bit longer. So it would have been an even more gush worthy chapter, but we decided to people string people along until, I don't know, when do they finally kiss like chapter 87 or something like that. So uh, I hope everybody will keep reading cause it does happen at some point. So thank you very much. And, uh, yeah, bite me. <laughs>